Alright, hello everybody, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and per usual, I am your host. Thank you for listening, as always. Uh, I know you have a lot of choices for MMA-related content. I am humbled that you choose mine. Uh, Let's see, what do we got? You know, we got stuff to talk about tonight. Uh, UFC 290 was last, last night. Um, I don't do card of the year. That's not a award I give out or think about all that often. But if I did, that's, dude, that's 2023 card of the year for all of MMA, not just the UFC right now. And I have a hard time imagining something that's going to do better than that. Not impossible, but that was special. It was a special card, a special night of fights. Uh, We're going to go over all of it. And then we have to pay the toll. You see, MMA can never just give you a good thing. And the toll we're going to pay is this coming Saturday's card, which we will preview here. UFC on ESPN Plus 82. I believe that's also UFC Vegas 70-something. 77, I want to say whatever the fact that they have like eight different naming conventions for these things is profoundly annoying by the way so that's uh and then we got news we have some news to discuss because well there's always something isn't there and there is something this week so that's where we are um before we continue if you could please interact with the product a little bit if you want to save your comment until the end i that's perfectly understandable like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, whatever's applicable to your podcast platform of choice. If you've done any and all of that, or you don't want to do any and all of that and would only feel like doing the next part, uh, share. Pick a social media platform of choice. They are sprouting up these days, it seems. So tell people that you're interested in about that you think might like the show. So, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, that's stupid, unusable one. Threads. Um, what's the other one? They try like Mastodon. I don't know anything about that one. Uh, friggin' Reddit. You know, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> um, just if you feel so, if you would, you know, let people on again, whatever sites you kind of frequent, or people you know in person, if you think they'd like the show and be interested, point them in my direction, and let me see what I can do about educating, entertaining, or just helping you fill the silence of the void that slowly creeps in around the edges of your sanity. I'm good with any of that. So, thank you as always. All right. Uh, Yeah, let's jump into this, shall we? I think that's all the preamble. So, UFC 290 in review. And to say it again, exceptional night. I haven't had, I have not had a night like this watching fights in a long time. Doesn't mean, I'm not going to say every fight was exceptional. There were, uh, there were a couple that were just kind of there. But, there was nothing bad. Which is kind of a rarity. Um, before we got in, before we get into this very briefly, uh, what did we lose? So this fight, we lost a couple of things from this fight. 
You'll recall originally for a while they were talking about having um, Davis and Figueredo try his hand at flyweight one more time against Manel Cop. That fell apart. Figueredo apparently thought he could make 125 again and then got started and decided, no, I don't want to do this. And hey, I don't blame the guy. He's always struggled to make 125. So he said, nope, sorry. I was right the first time. Bantamweight's the move. So they bumped him. He'll fight somebody at bantamweight in the near future. And we're going to get um, Manel Kopp and Kai Kara France at UFC 293. That's actually a pretty good fight. Um, week of, we well, we had some stuff. So I think, did I talk about... I think I did talk about how Sean Brady fell out of this on the preview. If not, I apologize and I'll just recap this very briefly. We were supposed to get at welterweight Jack Della Maddalena and Sean Brady. Brady had a streptococcus thing, kind of a... Because it's strep and not staph, and I'm not going to call it a staph infection, it's weird to get strep in your elbow, but that's what he had. So he had a pretty serious infection he had to deal with. He was out. Now, the UFC, of course, did not call someone on their roster who was willing to fight him. They found someone from the regional scene that they could pay 10 and 10 to. In this case, it was Josiah Harrell. Funny kind of roundabout thing. This might have saved his life. You see, during the um, pre-fight medical screening for Harold, they found something in his brain scan. They found uh, Moya Moya disease. I may be mispronouncing that. Um, it's a constriction of arteries around the brain, in and around the brain, and they can rupture. They can you know, they can get blocked. They can get constricted, and if they rupture, you get That'll kill you, man. There's some serious blood vessels in your brain. They found that on his scan before the fight. So naturally, he couldn't fight. But, again, might have saved his life. So you had a couple of guys who claim, take this for whatever it's worth. There's a few people who said, I'll step in, no day's notice, and I will fight. There might actually be some uh, regulatory hurdles with that effort. Might be. But, I mean, Kevin Holland came out and said it publicly. Uh, Chris Curtis actually uh, said, I threw my name out there to fight the guy. It would have to be like 185, obviously. Uh, And according to Curtis, and I don't really have a reason to disbelieve him of this, JDM had no problem said yes. There's something going on with kind of the UFC and what they were wanting to do, and unfortunately, I was I was looking forward to JDM and Sean Brady. I thought that was a very good fight. Both guys kind of at a crossroads there. Um, Brady's maybe hit his ceiling, and if he had and was kind of on the downside, JDM was going to, we'll figure that out in a hurry. Conversely, JDM had not really fought a very powerful wrestler, certainly not a dedicated wrestler, and Brady is that in spades. So, interesting questions that could be answered about both guys. Uh, Apparently, JDM is staying in Vegas, and, you know, we got the card next week. And frankly, that card, we're going to preview it later, that card could use all the help it could get. If you can get him on there against anybody, would be a win. So, we lost that one. 
Um, was there another thing that we lost? Um, I think that's it for stuff we might have lost. Everything else was basically as previewed. Um, oh, forgot to mention, minor note, uh, Brandon Royval apparently weighed in as the backup for the co-main event. Uh, so in case anything happened there, he was your official on-deck guy for the title fight. Um, okay. Let's get into the fights. Again, very good night of fights. Um, I haven't had this much fun watching MMA in a while. I, I tend to find stuff to enjoy, even on lesser cards. There have been some total slogs, and I'm happy to call them that. But I think it's it would be disingenuous of me to, on some of these cards that like didn't look great on paper, but had a couple of things that delivered to come out here and say, no, the whole thing sucked. It doesn't always. Um, this, we, I said in the preview, we had a really good, uh, pay-per-view card. Turns out the entire thing wound up delivering. Again, there's a couple here and there that when we get to, we can talk a little bit about, but as a general rule, um, this, this was an exceptional, exceptional night of fights, and that deserves to be acknowledged. All right, main event. Alexander Volkanovsky. Defeats Yael Rodriguez via TKO punches, 419 of the third. I am running out of great things to say about Volkanovsky. Uh, I, it's just, it's, where do you go with this guy from this point? So the fight itself, let me talk a little bit about how it played. Both men do a lot of stance switching. Interesting stuff from... Volkanovsky here, most of the time he wanted to keep the stances closed because Yair likes to punt in powerful body kicks that require the open stance. Volk wanted to deny him that, so he did a lot of the early stance switching there. Worked his jab a bit. He's got a beautiful jab. Not as much as other times, though. I think the constant stance switching kind of messed with that. But first round, a little bit of a feeling out on the feet. Both guys landing some leg kicks. Um... Rodriguez throws a body kick. Volkanovski catches it, takes him down, gets on top of his guard, shoves him, stuffs him against the fence, and just beats him up for the <laughs> rest of the round, basically. Um, cut him open, I seem to recall. Really just you know, pretty classic stuff from there. Second round, a bit more of the same. Rodriguez struggled to really kind of get out of the blocks here. Um... Volkanovski is exceptional at many things. One of them, he slows, he makes you fight his fight. And most of the time that means he's slowing things down a little bit. Dude, he slowed down Max Holloway. Rewatch their fights if you're so inclined. They're great fights. But look at Max's output versus Volk's. And they're... Then compare Max's output in those three fights to his output from any other three-fight sample from his entire UFC run, which has been 90-plus percent of his entire MMA career. And you'll see, Volkanovski just depresses you. And it, he depresses your offense. So he, got, he had some really nice mat returns with Rodriguez. He had some really nice clinch takedowns, too. Um... Really nice outside trips. Some that were just sublimely timed. I mean, easy 
Yair Rodriguez is not the easiest guy in the world to take down. And Volk just a couple of times up. Oh, we're stepping this way. Quick little, you know, foot sweep, heel scoop. Yep. And down we go. Uh, just incredible. When Rodriguez would try to wall walk, Volkanovsky would he would lean on his legs. So you'd have kind of either not usually a high crotch, but kind of a body lock low around the waist. Maybe thinking about transitioning, and he's just sagging all of his weight onto this under one of the legs, and it really stifled Rodriguez's ability to build. And then he again, Matt returns, beat him up. Third round, most of the third round actually, well a good chunk of it, Rodriguez is actually doing pretty good. He's down two rounds, he knows it, he's been beat up, his left eye's cut and swelling, and like, all right, fine, here we go. He comes out, and he starts getting on the gas a little bit. He starts throwing more. He starts being more offensively minded. Has some good kicks. Lands a couple. He doesn't land any powerful kicks, but he does land a couple of punches off of them. Some nice combination work. But Volkanovski's stance switching has really begun to get to him. It's really started to mess with him, and I, I want to talk about this in just a second. So he... So Volkanovski, a classic combination. He actually hits Rodriguez with this a couple of times throughout the fight. Kind of a step up, left, so he starts orthodox. Step up, lead leg, usually low kick, occasionally to the body. Instead of stepping back down and landing orthodox, he swings that left leg all the way back to step through into southpaw, and as he does, he throws a right hook. It's a really sneaky technique. And you've got to really be watching to be aware of it. Um, and he he throws this at Rodriguez and throws the low, steps up, throws the left kick, the left leg kick. I can't remember if he let, went to the leg or body, but he throws the kick, slides it back, steps and kind of steps through in reverse. Rodriguez is kicking with him. He wants to get this back. He wants to engage. He knows he can't win doing what he's done. He throws a right body kick, and here, unfortunately for him, the distance isn't what he thinks it is, and Volkanovski's right hook cracks him in the jaw and badly hurts him. Doesn't drop him, but you see him get you see him get badly hurt, and he knows it. Volk punches him back to the fence. Rodriguez looks to square up and throw back, so Volk. One of the most disgusting in a complimentary way combinations I've ever seen. He's got him on the fence. He can't grab a full um, double collar tie because Rodriguez has both of his hands up in kind of the high guard. So he just kind of grabs him around his own guard. Normally with the collar tie, you want to be inside arm position, not outside. But he just grabs over him, throws a right knee, partially blocked, but right knee, right um, you know, stabbing kind of uppercut to the body, then the right uppercut under the guard to the head, then drops, big double leg slam, stands over him, punches him out. Um, that just knee, body shot, uppercut, dump you with a double leg. Just, again, absolutely disgusting. Loved every second of it. Uh, so a couple of technical things to note here. Uh, let me start with the finishing sequence. A lot of people have mentioned this. It's usually a mistake to go for a takedown when you have someone that hurt. Usually. It's not with a cup 
under the right conditions. In this case, some of the right condition the right conditions were as follows. Um, one, you're mitigating the danger your opponent poses. Some guys, even hurt, are still dangerous and still swinging, and that was Rodriguez in this case. The other thing is how you're able to get to the ground. It's fine to, my opinion, it's fine to take someone down when they're hurt if you're able to not get tied up with them. This was kind of a problem um, if you look at certain fights from the career of George St. Pierre. He would hurt people, he would get takedowns, but he'd kind of get stuck in guard. And sometimes he could elbow you out from there, sometimes he couldn't. And then, uh, this is this is the most mild of criticism of the great GSP, because I know I've got some Canadian listeners. Love GSP, okay? Not insulting him. But if you watch some of his fights, that's a thing that happened to him. There's some jujitsu practitioners who if the, who will do this as well. And you, I mean, I don't want to go through the laundry list. It will just be here forever. But you've, I guarantee you, you've seen this. You've seen somebody get the takedown, and because of how they land, or they get kind of tied up and they lose the finishing momentum. Personally, I don't have a problem with you throwing a guy to the mat if, in the process, you don't get tied up with him. That's what Volkanovski did here. Watch this double leg he hits. It's got some authority on it. He grabs both legs, locks his hands, scoops the legs to the side, drives things down. The big thing here is that on this takedown, he does not allow Rodriguez to get guard. This is, this is the momentum killer. If they can tie you up and stifle what you're doing, never lets him. Dumps him, postures immediately, and just starts dropping bombs on Rodriguez. Never lets him get a good defensive position. Never lets him tie things up. Never lets him stall. Uh, I Again, personally, I'm okay with you, especially if you're dealing with a guy who's offensively potent on his feet, as long as... you what you're doing is still maintaining finishing momentum, as long as you're not going to get tied up and stalled out. Volkanovski obviously did not get tied up, did not get stalled out. Brilliant fighter. <sighs> I said, I'm running out of great things to say about him. Um, he is now second most all-time for featherweight title wins, or featherweight championship fight victories and championship fights in the UFC featherweight division. Better word to say that. Um, this was his sixth. That was so that's the title win and then five title defenses, total of six. Uh, third is Max Holloway at five, and then Jose Aldo is first at I think eight. As again, we count every one of Aldo's title defenses and then his winning efforts in fights where he wasn't, where he was fighting for the title but wasn't the champion. Because uh, that, that would include his win over Frankie Edgar, which was technically for an interim belt. Um, so, I don't know if he'll get that. I don't know how much longer he wants to stick around featherweight. There's a lot of people here being a little bit, um, who, coming into this, how do I phrase this? There's a lot of people who either didn't watch or have forgotten about Volkanovski's rise 
through the UFC. There's a lot of people that only see him as this as a great striker. And personally, as a guy who I watched, I covered his first UFC fight. And, you know, everyone since. He came in as a powerhouse wrestler with sick ground and pound. He came in as kind of, kind of, stress the kind of here, don't get mad at me, but as kind of a featherweight Khabib. That was a lot more what he was doing early on in his UFC run. He'd throw with you, but he wanted to push you to the fence, wanted to clinch up, wanted to work takedowns from there, ground and pound, mat return, rinse, repeat. He did a lot of what Khabib did. That's kind of why he caught my eye, in all honesty, his first couple of fights, because he was very, very good at it. Like, exceptional. Then he obviously worked a lot on his striking, smoothed that out, and found that to be a much more efficient and effective method of victory more often than not. But coming into this fight, there's a reason one of the things I said was like, I don't, I think he could probably do to Yair kind of what Frankie Edgar did. And he pretty much did. Uh, so a lot of people being like, oh, wow. I, people were kind of dismissing his wrestling against Islam Makashev. And then there's a lot of people now going, wow, he's kind of rounding out his game by finally wrestling. And I'm sitting here face palming. I will say the following. A lot of his both wrestling and overall grappling has improved dramatically at this point from where it used to be. He's done a lot of work with Craig Jones recently, and it's 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 showing. And Craig Jones, one of the best, uh, certainly one of the best no-gi jiu-jitsu guys in the world. Um, not quite like Gordon Ryan, but he's... I think Ryan has the, uh, the winning record versus him. But I, I, setting that, like Gordon Ryan is the best no-gi grappler of all time. But Craig Jones is one of the very, very, very best in the world. Um, he's like, probably one of the top three. He is an ex- And he has... Jones has a mind for this, for jiu-jitsu applications to MMA. He's one of the few guys who looked at like what the Dagestanis were doing in MMA with you know, some of their wrestling sensibilities and strategies and went, okay, why is this working? And how do you know, what are we doing here? Uh, and he came up with a he came up with a very interesting um, idea about what was going on. You know, one, a lot of jujitsu guys don't have great takedowns, and two, most of them don't work on pins. Uh, whereas a lot, if you look at some of those, again, some of the Dagestani guys and what they do, they're not concerned with positional advancement, the way that most jujitsu guys are. They want a position of control. And there's not a lot of jiu-jitsu guys who work on pinning in that respect. And I think that's a fairly uh, sharp insight. And so he's been, point being there, Volkanovski's been working a lot with Craig Jones. If you look at some of his pins here, some of his clinch takedowns, his leg work, um, if you watch really good no-gi grapplers, they use their legs as much as their hands. Obviously, you don't have the same dexterity, um, individual digit dexterity, but the ability to 
fight your posting with your le with legs. You know, I'm, not to bring up Khabib again, but he was exceptional at this too. Watch him fight for position with guys when they're trying to get up. A lot of guys only think about using their hands when they're stripping your base. It's hands. Khabib's happy to, if he can, use his legs and his feet to do it, which means he's got a free arm to punch you in the face with. So you got a lot of that out of Volkanovski here. Here's, I'm going to give him, I'm going to give Volkanovski like the highest, maybe the highest praise I can give here. I don't think there's a better distance manager in the sport than Volkanovski. It's not perfect, no, because it's fighting, so it can't be. But he's a short guy. I don't know that he's ever been the taller fighter in his UFC run. I'd have to go back and double check all of them. I don't think he has. He's got long. He's had a longer reach than some of those guys because he's got a relatively absurd wingspan for his height. But he's the shorter guy, and he has figured out the appropriate way to deal with fighting bigger guys. And the reality, and it's hard, man. I mean, there's there's ways you talk with people about how to fight bigger guys than you. And there's certain principles that you teach, especially to you know, beginners. Like when you're starting out, you're trying to figure out what's going on. Like, And I'm not knocking the that, but a lot of the advice they give at first is very broad because you there's a lot that you need to refine before you can worry about some of the specificity here. The way to deal with a guy who's taller than you you have to manage distance. And I don't, the the shorthand for this is all the way in or all the way out, right? That's only so useful. There's a concept there that is very useful. But if you're all the way out, maybe you're not getting hit, but you're still probably going to lose because you can't do anything. If you're all the way in, you have to be able to manage being tied up. This is somewhat fight this is somewhat fight sport dependent as well, so bear with me here. What you have to do is figure out their range, know your range, know how to position yourself so it looks like you're in range for them to hit you, not be there, and then be able to adjust closer quickly to be to be in your range. And you've gotta like that's a small margin. It's a real small margin that you're working with. But you have to be able to f dance out of range. And I don't mean all the way out. When these people, I have a, I have an issue with some of the linguistics around this because of how it conveys the thought. Like, what's the difference between all the way out and part of the way out? The answer is like, can the other guy reasonably reach you? If yes, you're not all the way out. But, as long as they can't hit you, you're all the way out, my opinion. Now, man, you know, I would never teach someone new this, because then they're like, oh, but I thought I was out of range. Well, he's moving, you're moving, you got to be mindful of the distance. Whereas, you, so if I'm, but functionally speaking, like if I'm, if I am two inches past where you can hit me, 
that may as well be the same as being three feet away from where you can hit me. If you, This is kind of binary. You can either reach me or you can't. And the, the, dis, the difference between people still figuring stuff out and learning and the exceptional top of the food chain guys is the difference between... They understand the difference there and they know how to manage the last two inches because if I'm three feet from where you can hit me I feel pretty comfortable but I can't do anything to you there's no difference but it, okay so maybe I'm you know one foot away from where you can hit me if you're not used to being sw to have people swinging at you that's even if they're missing you by a foot that can still mess with your head okay, especially your first couple of times sparring like, there's a reason you see then you see the beginners and they do what they do it's it's very different. The greats manage that last inch, inch and a half, because that's a, why why be further out? An inch is an inch is as good as a mile if you are missing. You just have to be more on your game if there's only an inch, because that means all they have to do is close that distance one inch, and then you are in danger. And that's what makes people uncomfortable. Again, especially, especially beginners. I'd even say like beginner, like starting beginner to intermediate, because then you're like relearning how to deal with this. A lot of times with beginner stuff, you actually teach, uh, you deal with like bigger gaps in space, right? Because that's more comfortable. And then you just have to get you get people used to being comfortable being swung out and dodging even if it's by larger distances you get comfortable there get closer now get comfortable again and suddenly you're starting to freak out because you're used to people missing you by four inches and suddenly you're trying to make them miss by you know half of that and it'll it freaks people out but you know there's a reason like watch the dutch style kickboxes and they're just in each other they're like forehead to forehead because their defense both with their with blocking with slipping is quite good. If you're the smaller guy, especially, you need to be able to manage that distance. Volkanovski is the best at that, the best. He knows your range, he knows his range, and he knows how to manipulate that. Doesn't mean he lands every strike he throws. Doesn't mean he avoids every strike you throw. But consistently. He knows where that line is. He knows how to play with it. He knows how to make you think you're safe, or you think you know the range, and so he hits you with something. Maybe not a fight ender, but he hits you with something, and you think you know where things are, and they're not where the end. He's then changed an angle, changed his stance, changed the weapon, and you're not where you thought you were. You are. You might have thought you were pretty safe. You are no longer safe at all uh and again that's what got yair here right he was oh you throw the left leg kick you lead leg is your left leg in this case you throw that i counter with a right leg i counter with my power leg not a bad idea in all honesty not a bad idea but that switch stance changed the entire depth of that if if you 
if you're not worried about the right hand because you think he's going back into orthodox and you know, oh, his right hand is going to fall short here. Switch that stance, suddenly that right hand is in play. And if you don't realize it and you're blasting a power kick, especially if you do the Muay Thai thing with that, and there's pros and cons to this. Let me stress the following. What I'm about to say is not the definitive answer, okay? A lot of Muay Thai guys in particular, if you watch them, when they throw their kicks, their hands move. Now, this is miming, grabbing someone and pulling them into the kick, into the knee, etc. So you see that it generates a little power, actually. It helps you balance. You know, you're getting some rotation in the body. I'm not saying there's no reason. I'm not saying it's a bad technique. I'm not saying it's a bad way to do things. I'm saying, as with all things, there's give and take. When you throw your kicks like that, if you really get your arms into it to help, you leave your head open. That also kind of bit Yair here when, uh, with, with uh, how that played out. So, asked what he wanted next after the fight, Volkanovski said, well, I need surgery. I think his left elbow uh, is what, the, what has come out after. He didn't specify. He, one of his arms. He's, he said an arm. I think it's come out since left elbow is what they're looking at. Which would make sense if you watch some of how this fight played. He didn't jab as much as usual. Some of that's the constant stance switching. If his left elbow needs something done to it, that would be another reason not to throw it. A lot of his ground and pound is very right side heavy. He doesn't throw the left a lot until the finishing sequence, when it's just, you know, right, left, right, left, right, just, you know, ground and pound drill. But that might make sense, you know, which which arm might be a little bit messed up, but, dude, to do that even, do that with an elbow that needs surgery, too, good grief. Uh, but he said, you know, he still wants to go up to lightweight, he wants the lightweight belt. I... I'm not sure how the timing is going to work with his surgery. We'll have to wait and see. I don't hate a rematch between him and Makashev. I don't hate it. Liked the first fight a lot. And he also mentioned Ilya Teporia. Had a couple of good fights. He's been making some noise. He said, if he wants to keep talking, I'll squash him too. Teporia was cage side. They had a little bit of a face-to-face after the fight. Uh, so there was that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, again, I'm running out of superlatives for Volkanovski. Fun little fact. If we count just the featherweight division, so I'm gonna, setting aside the fight with, uh, Makashev, right? He has not lost a round since the second round of his fight with Max Holloway in 2020, so the second fight. So... The judges who scored that fight for him, I think they gave Volkanovski rounds 3, 4, and 5. That's what I did, personally. So if you count that, so like round 3, 4, 5, all three of those rounds. He won all five rounds against Ortega. We're up to eight. He won all three rounds prior to the stoppage of the Korean Zombie. You want to count the... Some, should we count the round that he... We probably should, I suppose. So that was stopped in the fourth. So that gets us up to 12. Yeah. He won all five rounds of the re- of the third fight with Max Holloway. 
So we're at 17. And then he won both the first and the second before stopping this one in the third. So he's won like 20 rounds or so in a row. If you kind of pursue into you scoring the round, he got a couple of those finishes in, which I don't know about the, I don't know exactly about the um, proper protocol there. But, dude, Max Holloway dropped him twice, once in the first round, once in the second round of their second fight, and he hasn't lost a round at featherweight since. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and had an argument to have beaten, had an argument to have beaten Makashev. Uh, yeah, he's, man, he's the best. He's the, he's the best. I know John Jones had kind of gotten up to number one pound for pound, and I'm not trying to crap on John, but coming back after that hiatus and winning the title, while impressive, I don't think eh, I I think Volk's the best, and you know, I respect the fact that Makashev got that win. Not how I saw it, but I wasn't mad about it. You know, I don't I don't think scoring that fight for Makashev is wrong. So I I don't know exactly what's next for Volk, but we'll see. I uh, genuinely very curious to see what he does next. He's about to hit that line though, for the record. Um, you know, 35. 35 is a pretty steep. No one. The, the the weird stat is like the record of fighters over the age of 35 from 170 to 125 in title fights in the UFC. There, there are two wins for fighters over the age of 35, both of which were Tyron Woodley. One was Damian Maya, who was 40, and then one was Darren Till. Volk's going to be 35 before the end of this year. And if we, so the point there being, if we take welterweight out of the equation, no one 35 or older has won a UFC title fight at lightweight, featherweight, bantamweight, or flyweight ever. Then that's a harsh stat, man. Now, if there's anyone who's going to buck that trend at the moment, I do think it's, he didn't look slower here at all. Now, if there's anyone that's going to buck that trend, he's got a real good shot at it. But that is coming up. Just a minor thing to pay attention to. Um, Rodriguez, he just fought a guy who was better than him everywhere. I took Yair's chances pretty seriously coming into this, if you'll recall. Didn't pick him. But I. it took me a while to come around to the idea that Rodriguez is actually a pretty good fighter. I think it's only recently I've come around, and partially because I think it's only recently he's really smoothed out some of his game. Uh, he earned this shot. You know, you can't say he didn't. But setbacks to both Max Holloway and Volkanovski, that's, uh, he's, you know, he's still plenty young. He's, what, 30? I doubt this was the last time he has he's in a fight with a title on the line in some capacity. But uh, yep. 
the Mexican MMA crowd has had a rough night for a while. Um, they've rode that pretty big wave. I'll get to the co-main in a second. This is going to be my transition. Then Porterine Aldana just had nothing for Nunes. Then we get here Rodriguez, interim champion, coming into this. Loses. And then our co-main... Alessandre Pantoja defeats Brandon Moreno via split decision. There was a 49-46 for Moreno. Turned in by, I think this was Ben Cartledge. Um, he gave Moreno rounds 2, 3, 4, and 5. I don't get that at all. Then there were two 48-47s for Pantoja. Personally, I was 49-46 Pantoja with a caveat. My caveat being, I'm not sure I was right about the fourth round. Um, the fourth round in particular, I'm, I was, rounds three and four were both super close. Round one, easy to score, Pantoja. Round two, easy to score, Moreno. Round five, should have been easy to score for Pantoja. So it, those middle, but three and four, man. Um, four, I think in particular. The more I kind of have thought about it. Four, both of those were close rounds. Four was... Four easily could have gone to Moreno. I felt pretty good giving three to Pantoja, but... Um, four, I'm not as confident in my scoring of having thought about it. You know, real time is real time. And you know, I'm doing things other than just, strictly speaking, watching the fight. I gotta watch, I gotta type, I gotta spell check myself. I'm... Stuff. It's why, it's why, you know, I don't mind saying when I think I'm wrong, because I'm not just sitting there devoting 100% of my attention to the fight. Um, oh, minor note, sorry, last thing on the main event. Um, there was a headbutt in the third round. I think, I, not intentional. They, they, well, they banged heads. But because Volkanovski is the shorter guy, he's a little lower. He's entering throwing punches. He's not just throwing his head forward. But he's lower. His head's in alignment, and he's kind of coming up as he's throwing. Rodriguez is a bit more upright, usually is. And the crown of Volkanovski's head ran into his jaw. I'm not saying that's why Volkanovski won. Okay? Just be very clear about that. He was winning this fight... Uh, that round, again, was a little bit more pro-Rodriguez before that, but it wasn't a runaway. Uh, he was, point being, Volkanovski was winning this fight regardless. It would be, however, it, it deserves to be noted that the foul happened. Not that Rodriguez, you know, wasn't grabbing inside the glove and grabbing the fence with his toes repeatedly, especially in the first round. Like, there was a little bit of that going both ways. I mean, granted, the headbutt was more impactful, but just noting that it happened for the sake of honesty and transparency. Not that transparency is not the right word there. For the sake of honesty and historical accuracy, let's call it that. It didn't knock Rodriguez out. It didn't, I'm sure it didn't feel good, especially looking at the replay. That was, that kind of felt good. But it didn't, it wasn't, um, you know, it didn't drop him. Like they, they banged heads. Rodriguez mentioned it. The ref saw it. Volkanovski acknowledged it. Everybody paused, and the dude took as much time as he wanted to recover. 
So this wasn't a, you know, Gastelum and Curtis Jackson thing. Where the, it went unacknowledged and, like, legitimately knocked him out for a second. It wasn't that, but it, it did happen. So, um, co-main event again. You could go 48-47 either, for either guy. And I think it's... You give Moreno 2, 3, and 4. You give Pantoja 1 and 5. I'm not arguing with you. I'm I'm not here to... I'm not here to tell you that's wrong. I think that's perfectly defensible. Um, this fight, though. This was your fight of the night. This might be your fight of the year. These two... Man, um... They come out, and it, from the word go, the pace these two fought at, there's a re- both guys were fatigued in the fifth, and even for flyweights, this was a bonkers pace. So they come out, they start trading. Um, Moreno, a little more fleet of foot, a little more mobile, faster hands, gets his jab going. Pantoja is hanging with him, though. He's landing a couple of kicks, not a whole lot. Neither guy did a... Neither guy kicked a lot. Pantoja threw a few in here and there. Um, they just kind of bounced off each other, just throwing punches. Like these guys were Tasmanian devils. Just in there, start swinging. The dust flies up. They break apart. Pant, go back at it. Uh, this was an this was amazing. So Pantoja lands a left hook in the first that drops Moreno, gets his back briefly. They scramble a bunch, but Pantoja takes the first. Second round. Moreno regroups. His jab gets working better, moving, landing punches, gets a takedown of his own. A pretty clear second round for Moreno. Third round, Pantoja looks a little slower. The hand speed was always in favor of Moreno here. But Pantoja seemed to slow a little bit first, and then he got Moreno to slow with him a little bit later in the in the round. Uh, they're trading. Bit of a kick from Moreno that Pantoja catches, takes him down. Pretty good top control, gets his back for a period of time. Both guys' faces are busted up, they're bleeding. Uh, Fourth round, again, super close round, just a lot of banging into each other. Um, Pantoja, a little bit of control in this round, not as much offense with it. Uh, Not as much positional dominance. So if you could give that fourth to Moreno, I wouldn't blame you. Then last round, slower pacing in both these guys. For flyweights, they kept a crazy pace, so it caught up to them at the end. And the damage, you know, it, it's one thing to have a good, to just have a high output. It's another to have a high output while you're absorbing physical damage. These two, I don't have any problem saying this, man. These two just took time off each other's careers with this fight. Just taking lumps out of each other. Both guys swollen up, both guys cut, both guys bleeding. This was... So, uh, the deciding bit here in the fifth round, Moreno has some success on the feet. He gets hit a little bit. Pantoja gets a takedown, gets his back, and spends like the last, I think, two minutes and change on in the backpack position, basically. Um, ridiculous. Ridiculous, ridiculous fight. Could go either. You could, again, 48-47, either way. I'm not arguing with you. Um, again, fight of the night, fight of the year, probably. Amazing fight. These two just 
went in there and swung at each other. If you're interested in the statistics here, um, if we look at, so for both significant strikes and total strikes, Moreno technically held an edge. In, uh, again, numerical quantities, not um, qualitative. Um, but Moreno landed 147 of 245 significant strikes. Pantoja landed 129 of 274. So these two combined for nearly, for what, a little over 500 strikes thrown. That's significant. If we go to total, Pantoja threw 323 total strikes. Moreno threw 265 total. Um, ele- six of 11 takedowns from Pantoja. He had the only knockdown. That's an insane stat, by the way, for this fight. That um, Moreno never knocked Pantoja down. He hit him with some serious power. Uh, but couldn't knock. Dude, Pantoja's never been finished. I imagine that'll change in the near future, because good grief. The. This is the kind of fight where you're never the same. This is the kind of fight where you, that you are never the same after. These two just tore out of each other. Uh, it was great. Great to watch. Um, irrelevant control time. Over the total, over the whole fight, Pantoja had 826. Um, how did that break down? Yeah, he had 304 in the fourth, and then, again, not as much offense off of it, but in a fair chunk of that was uh, clinch work, if memory serves. And then 217 in the fifth. Yeah, Moreno technically had the control... Oh, because they did a lot of clinching early in that first round, and Moreno kind of had Pantoja in the fence. But, yeah, these two just... uh, Just... Everything. Everything they had. And the old thing about you left nothing. These two left nothing for the trip home. Poured out the jug, wrung out the sponge, whatever your metaphor. Beat each other up, cut each other up. Wouldn't stop, wouldn't quit. Swings in momentum, positional changes, great scrambling. Both men hooking off the jab. Uh, just, again, my hat. Totally off to these two. If you're curious briefly about the um, targeting, Brandon Miranda threw 90% of his strikes to the head, only 8% to the body. A little bit of a difference maker, I thought, actually. Um, Pantoja threw 82 to the head, 15 to the body, 2% to the leg. He landed a couple of leg kicks. Um, but I think the body work of Pantoja, especially once he started slowing, he wanted to slow, try and slow Moreno down a bit with him. Body work will do that. Um, body work will do that. And I think that helped him a lot as far as that goes. Because Moreno, was, by the time we got to the fifth round, both these guys just... We're not talking like heavyweight exhausted, but they were tired. And I don't blame them when I owed it. When they announced the decision uh, for Pantoja, he just... He collapsed. Like, he just, he almost kind of flare-flopped, just face down on the canvas, just everything. He had done everything he could to get that win. Um, so, yeah, my yeah, fight of the night, for sure. Current fight of the year, going to take something special to unseat this. 
which we might get, by the way. We have some, we got some fights coming up that might, but just remarkable stuff from both guys. Loved it. Loved the fight. Um, briefly about Pantoja, he got booed as this decision was read out. Uh, the needs to be said. This was in Vegas. Um, this event. The Mexican fan base doesn't mind going to Vegas. Yeah, if you've got some big Mexican, if you get a big Mexican star, uh, I mean, especially in combat sports, you know, Canelo or you know, he's kind of the preeminent one at the moment. David Benavides is making some headway there, though, and that's on the boxing side. Uh, there's certain places that they don't mind going. You know, there's places in Southern California um, that the Mexican fan base has no problem going to. They have no problem going to Vegas. None at all. Uh, they were there, they were loud, and they were supporting their people. And Mexican MMA did not have a good night. You know, Rodriguez lost, Moreno lost. I mean, Moreno turned in a... I don't want to say all he did was lose. You know, Rodriguez kind of got outclassed. Moreno was life and death. That was a life and death fight. So I'm not taking anything away from him. He did lose the title, though. Um, earlier in the card, we'll get to it when we get to it on the specific ones, but uh, Yasmin Hauregi lost. You had Aldana lose earlier. Um, Alexa Grasso, kind of the last Mexican standing at the moment, uh, for the champions at least. And maybe the last one with momentum. Well, uh, there's a couple guys on the come up that maybe... The last currently like high-profile Mexican fighter with momentum. They might do another fight between Moreno and Pantoja. Moreno might win this. He's he very well could. Like he um, he could have won this one. And so might get it back. Wouldn't shock me if he did. Just as a as an aside, wouldn't shock me. But the crowd the crowd booed him for a little bit, and it's unfortunate, man, because he did. I understand the impulse. You know, maybe they thought Moreno won, and I don't think you're wrong to think Moreno won. Like, this wasn't blind homerism. You could argue Moreno won. But it's not like he... The decision wasn't bad. These two guys both went out there and fought life and death. It's unfortunate that he got booed. He didn't deserve it. Sometimes you have fights where you do, or sometimes you have someone who antagonizes the crowd. Fair enough. Um... Pantoja did none of that. All he did was go out there and just rip the heart out of his chest, throw it down in the cage, and say, you better take this from me. And... So his post-fight speech, pretty darn good, actually. You know, he... He said... Near the end, he said something that... I think is important. Um... Telling part of his story, he said, you know, my mom raised me and my two brothers alone because our dad didn't want to be around. Then he looks at the camera and says, are you proud of me now, dad? Huh? I don't know how much of that was like a screw you and how much of that was a genuine kind of like plea for attention. Or, you know, what combination of those two things it was. But when you see that kind of emotion pour out of somebody, uh, you don't. Like, you don't usually forget that. Even if it's slightly awkward in the second language, like, that, when that comes from the heart, that's kind of universal. 
So hats off to Pantoja for this one. I didn't pick him, but, uh, you know, feel a little foolish about that one. Maybe I should have, <laughs> you know. Uh, he'd beaten Moreno twice before, so. I mean, obviously, this, this was easily the closest of, those, of the three fights they've had. Might get a fourth. I mean, after this fight, I mean, would you object? Uh, like, this was a great fight. Like, this is the... Depending on how you want to, like, what your personal criteria is, this might be the best flyweight title fight in UFC history. This is the most, certainly the most, like, blood and guts in the trenches war. They, and I say that having seen some of the, you know, the first fight between Moreno and Figueredo, this was more blood and guts than that. That was a great fight, though. I mean, take nothing away from that fight. This was better. We might get an immediate rematch between these two. Um, I don't know what either. I... I'm actually a little worried for Brandon Moreno at this point. And he... just to say the following, let me let me bring up old Brandon here. Um. So he's had some really tough fights. Let me go over his last few fights very briefly, okay? So he earns his title shot beating Brandon Royval. I believe that was the fight where Royval's shoulder separated. But they, those two went at it for as long as that fight lasted. His fight with Davison Figueredo, December 12th, 2020, draw, fair draw. That's a war. Like Those two, he, those two took lumps out of each other. Rematch, he beats Figueredo pretty cleanly. Still gets hit a few... Like, that's still a fight, though. Uh, fourth fight between them... Sorry, third fight between them. Loses the unanimous decision. And, again, takes some lumps along the way. Fights for the interim title against Kai Cardafrance. Has a rough couple of rounds before he stops Cardafrance with the body kick. Fights Figueredo the fourth time. Gets the better of that fight pretty cleanly before the stoppage. But... He's had, and now this fight, this is absolute uh, dog fight. Just he's had a bunch of very demanding fights, kind of in a row. Now he's young. He's only twenty nine. So old. But when you when you have all that kind of in a row, like that bill comes due, man. Um, what, what's the um, what's the line from? I think it's Jim Ross, the professional wrestling commentator. Um, I want to say it was during one of the like TLC matches or the first triple threat ladder match between like the Dudleys, the Hardys, and Edge and Christian, like, we're all on the road to the grave, but there's no need to be in the passing lane. Moreno's career is probably going to end sooner than people think if all you look at is his age. That's all I'm saying. I mean, to say nothing of Pantoja, who's 33 and just went out there and had this war. So, I don't know, I'm... I'm just saying be aware of that. Like, Moreno's out there, and he's getting into these fights. And that that has a cost. 
That's all I'm saying. Um, wouldn't hate a rematch between these two right away. Um, this was a great, again, great fight. Fight of the year right now. Pretty good chance it holds on to it, too. All right. Um, there were a fair amount of upsets here, for the record. Some of the, I'm going to say this, like some of the odds I thought were a little bit too wide. Um, Volkanovski was a pretty big favorite over Rodriguez. That wound up playing out kind of that way, but if you don't mind playing you know, the odds, getting all, well, well, Rodriguez was over 2-1 to one underdog, I think. Like, that might have been worth the money. Pantoja, underdog, that was actually, a, I think that was decently close on the odds. But, yeah, Pantoja got that. Here we had a pretty big upset. Look, I'm not going to sit here and say I told you so, because I picked wrong on this fight. I am going to say I told you so in the sense that a lot of people were very dismissive of this fight. And I came around to the notion that... I. So I'm not saying I would have picked any different, I'm, but I'm one of the few guys who sat out here before God and everyone and said, Drickus Duplessis is not to be underestimated. Maybe he doesn't win, because Robert Whitaker is Robert Whitaker. But there's a lot of people going, he's got no chance. He's got no chance, and that's a mistake. So Drickus Duplessis defeats Robert Whitaker. TKO stops him with punches. 230, excuse me, 223 of the second. Wish I could. I, I would love to get up here and say I told you so and say I picked him. I did not pick uh, Duplessis. But I did come up here and say here's what he's got going for him. He's physically strong. He's. Un he's incredibly determined. He's awkward, but he's not... This is one of the things about him. A lot of people look at how he fights and how he moves, and they go... And they kind of dismiss it, because it's not really how you would teach anyone to do that stuff. And they sh you know, some of the clips that have been making the rounds are like him trying the lateral drop on Derek Brunson and getting stuck on bottom. Like, this guy beat Robert Whitaker? Yeah. He got better. People forget, like, he beat... I mean... I get that that moment was not the height of decision making of his decision making prowess, but he beat, he stopped Derek Brunson. Like yeah, that was a poor decision on his part in that particular fight in that particular moment. He won. <laughs> like he won the fight eventually. Um. And I, guys who are determined, who are physically strong. And it's all right. Part of being awkward in how you fight. There's two kinds of people that do this. There's the people who don't know what they're doing. And there's the people who do. And that might seem like a really odd thing, but just hear me out for a second. Any good coach, any good instructor will teach you the basics, will teach you the fundamentals. Now, some of that falls apart under stress, not because of anything the coach does, but because that's human nature, right? 
Anytime, look, watch. You, you can do this. Take a fighter. There's a bunch of the best fighters in the world. Watch them in sparring. Watch them on pads. Watch them on the bag. Whatever. Then watch them in a fight. And a lot of that stuff doesn't actually translate the same way that it does when there's not this, that level of stress. And that's like that's not a knock on any of those fighters. That's human. That's just human. That's why you train stuff so I'd say tight. But like th- there's a visual component to this usually that I can't do here. But if you so imagine like you're you're shadow boxing, right? And you're shadow boxing perfect. Shadow boxing straight, fast, hard, out back, out back, out back. What happens when you're doing it under stress? What happens when you're doing it in the face of physical adversity? You ain't doing that. It gets looser. It gets wider. Now, the problem is if you train looser and wider, when you get under stress, it still goes looser and wider, right? Like this is why you train so specific. Because you're minimizing the impact of the stress and the physical adversity. But any good coach will teach you the basics. Eventually, you have to figure out how to tailor the basics and the principles to you. And that's that's hard. That's really hard. It takes time, it takes experience, it takes, how do I phrase this? It takes the death of your ego, I mean death is a little bit strong, but you have to crush your ego, and then you have to honestly assess. And when you can do those two things, because your ego is going to tell you to do one thing, maybe your ego is telling you you're a defensive savant. You're Muhammad Ali, you're Anderson Silva, you're Volkanovski, you're whoever. You're Floyd Mayweather. You're, I can't be touched. Move, slip, counter, move, slip, counter. Well, turns out, you know, if you don't have the stamina for that or you don't have the reflexes for that, you ain't doing that and it's only going to get you hurt. And you have to be able to crush your ego. Maybe your ego says, I hit like a truck. And then, you know, all evidence to the contrary, you can't fight like a power puncher. There's a lot of ways that can go. I can tell you what my ego does. I'm still working on crushing mine a little bit because it gets me in trouble. I mean, not real trouble, but you know, my ego is I'm going to back up. I'm going to time you coming in. I'm going to keep you at distance. You know, my ego is that. And it's not that I'm the worst in the world at that. I mean, first of all, I don't fight professionally, so there's a degree to which this isn't quite the same. But that's what I'm... Like that's what my ego is. That's what my, that's what I want to do. I because I, not to get too deep into my personal psychology, I value things that are more difficult. Being Dominic Cruz, footwork, elusive motion, that's harder than being uh, John Lineker. Not trying to insult John Lineker here, but you'll get my meaning, right? Like what John, dude? I couldn't beat John Lineker if you gave me a hammer. Well, maybe if you gave me a hammer. I actually have used hammers, so I. But my point there, like John Lineker would beat me into a bloody pulp if we fought. But what he does is not 
I do not perceive it as being more difficult. Consequently, I don't value it as much because that's kind of how my brain works. So I want to be, I want to demonstrate a higher degree of technical proficiency and skill that doesn't all, that is not always the best decision. <laughs> and so the law, so to wrap that back around to Duplessis, he has physical abilities that he has to figure out how to marry the concepts and principles of fighting with himself. And what comes out of that sometimes looks weird. Not just for him, for a lot of people. Not everyone is built, both internally and externally, to take just the fundamental principles at play and do them perfectly. You know, what do you do? Okay, so what do you do if, uh, again, you know the basic principles. Well, okay, but what do you do if you got one arm shorter than the other? Some people do. Do you put that forward or backward? That's what, that's, that's kind of why Bruce Lee fought right leg forward, right? Because I think it was his right leg was longer than his left. So you put the longer weapon forward. That's not really how you teach people to fight if they're right-handed. Like, even karate or adjacent martial arts, traditional martial arts don't really do that. So, do you want to fight ambidextrously? Do you want to switch stances? Are you any good from the other side? No? Then don't do it. But it, yeah. and, but you have to figure this out. Like, do you have a good jab? Okay, do we want to... You know, how's your defense? How's your footwork? Do you kick harder than you punch? Maybe we spend more time kicking. How's your flexibility? Okay, you can't really get your leg up high reliably and still be physically, defensively, positionally sound, so we're going to focus on leg kicks, maybe some body kicks. There's a, You have to tailor this stuff. So Duplessis has done this for long enough that he's kind of figured out what works for him. And I would never teach someone... I would never teach someone to fight like him specifically. Not because he's a bad fighter, but because I don't know how replicable what he does is. And there's a lot of people who dismiss that, who dismiss the fighters who are a little bit awkward. In some cases, maybe even still figuring out some of what they do. And it's, uh, sometimes you do it with good reason. Sometimes... It's a big mistake. And you know, to Robert Whitaker's credit, like the whole t- build up to this fight, he was going, no, like, this guy's a real challenge. You really shouldn't overlook him. Because he wasn't. And Whitaker came out and he looked pretty good. Here's one of the things about this. Um, so Duplessis comes out southpaw, which is weird. Normally he's orthodox. He does some switching, but normally orthodox. He comes out southpaw. I think he's trying to deal with, probably trying to deal with Whitaker's jab. Whitaker's jab is not, like, the jab itself is not the same when you go open stance versus closed. And Whitaker's jab is, you know, a thing of beauty. It's fast, it's accurate, it's impeccably timed. He's got one of the best jabs in the sport. I can't quite say the best, but one of. And he was landing it. You know, he landed that jab. But Duplessis was able to keep his defense up. He was not nearly as kind of spastic as he's as he's been in the past, to Duplessis' credit. He wasn't. A lot more dialed in. He blocks some kicks because Whitaker does the one-two head kick, which is a beautiful combination. 
and he's exceptional at it. But he you know, he was ready to block it. He poked with some kicks, and he landed some pretty good punches. He was ready to counter Whitaker. Whitaker does a lot of blitzing. Whitaker, unless he's got you hurt, this might seem weird. Whitaker's not a very long combination guy in terms of his striking. And again, this is just how he's good, how he likes to fight, what works best for him. It's not one and done. But watch his fights. Like you can probably count pretty easily the number of times he throws, like more than three at a time. He does a lot of jabbing, a lot of building off of that, a fair amount of kicking, but he doesn't do a lot of long exchange. He doesn't do a lot of pocket fighting. Uh, again, some, but not a lot. It's not where he's be- It's not where he really prefers. He prefers to be at range, poking at you, sniping at you, frustrating you, and then blitzing. And that works. That's a viable way to fight. Uh, he got a takedown in the first round, Whitaker did. What happened after that should have been more of a warning, I think, to a lot of us. Because Whitaker's got good control. He controlled Kelvin Gastelum on the ground. Um, Duplessis immediately scoots to the fence and wall walks. And they break apart. And Dean Thomas um, kind of got brought onto the broadcast at that point and said something interesting. Some, he said, you know, it was a good idea to get just to get Duplessis thinking about it, which is true. There's a lot of different levels at which you can attack. If your opponent, you need, if you want to open up other levels, showing them something different to get them thinking, good strategy. But he also said that when you're fighting an awkward guy, and Duplessis is an awkward fighter, awkward relative to normal expectations, sometimes just getting your hands on them, getting a feel for the physicality, is a beneficial thing. Even if it's just breaking a mental barrier in yourself, that like, okay, just a guy. And I think that's true, but I also think the way that played out um, showed something that we we all kind of didn't give enough credence to. I think, it, again, everybody overlooked this. Um, Duplessis is a tank. Like Robert Whitaker's not a small middleweight. He's not the biggest middleweight in the world, but he ain't small. And Duplessis, a little bit taller, but much bigger through the shoulders... Um, just physically larger. That physicality played a role. So, Duplessis starts landing some of his counters, starts landing a couple of his attacks. They tie up. Whitaker starts going for a takedown. Duplessis, one of the rare times you'll see the headlock work, I think because he realized they were going down, like, I may as well throw this to try and get on top, lands a headlock takeover, gets on top in half guard, and spends the last little bit of that round dropping elbows. He cuts Whitaker open. And I think the physicality there was something that a lot of us didn't give proper respect to because that played a big role. Um, Second round, the way this ended was interesting. Um, So again, Duplessis Southpaw, he does a little stance switching throughout this fight, but he normally only goes orthodox to either change an angle or if he's worried about like a big defensive flurry from Whitaker, I think his defense from Southpaw in general is not quite what it is from Orthodox. Most of the time when he's fighting Southpaw, it's his defense is, you know, fine enough. He's still getting jabbed, but he's blocking most of the counters because 
while Whitaker's getting a feel for things, he's got a handful of stuff that he does pretty reliably. Everyone does. Like, I'm not... This comes across like I'm backing on Whitaker. I'm not. Um, everyone has the... Especially early, everyone has the combinations and the stuff that they like to do to really get a read. Whitaker has those. And he was prepared for those, I think, from Southpaw. But anytime Duplessis felt like, oh, crap, I might have to default to other stuff, he went orthodox because I think he's more because he's more comfortable there, is my hunch. And then when when it either came and he dealt with it or it didn't and he could reset, he went back southpaw. So Whitaker steps into jab, but the jab in the open stance is weird. Um, it's just weird. So conventionally, conventional wisdom, if we're open stance, so if I'm orthodox in your southpaw, I want my lead foot on the outside of your lead foot. Why? Talked about this before. It gives a straighter lane for my right hand, my power hand, through the open space to your face. And it makes your left hand have to travel further to get to my face. Superior um, alignment and punching position and overall geometry for me for the power hand. The flip side of that is your lead hand is closer and has a straighter line to my face than my lead hand does to yours. So Whitaker steps to jab. Duplessis times this very well, steps in himself because Whitaker's going for outside foot position. Duplessis' right hand, his power hand, but he's fighting southpaw, so it's in front, lances forward, catches Whitaker on the jaw, drops him, Whitaker stands, but he's hurt. And Duplessis starts pushing forward. Lands a leg kick, backs him into the fence, keeps punching, chases him down, gets him shelled up along the fence, hits a nasty body shot, punches him down, pounds him out, uh, gets the stoppage. So, a lot of people, a lot of people after this having to reconcile that Duplessis is not... He's not to be trifled with, man. I Look, I said this coming in. I picked Whitaker. I am not doing the... I I knew something you didn't know. I'm not saying that. I'm saying... Some of us took him seriously. I did, I did take him seriously. I had no reservations about picking Robert Whitaker. Okay? But I can pick someone without too much reservation and still say... Don't ignore this other guy. Don't count him out. Don't pretend that... And there's a lot of people who just don't... They don't like Duplessis for whatever reason. They look at the way he fights and some of his decision-making is a little awkward. Some of his physicality is awkward. And it's like, how is this guy winning? He's winning. <laughs> you know, he's only lost once at middleweight. It was years ago to a guy who actually would go on to fight for the UFC a few times, uh, Gerald McClellan, and McClellan kind of washed out of the UFC. Um, there's a lot of people who were looking at this fight and going, well, if Roberto, uh, I think if, like if Roberto Soldich can kind of tune Duplessis up, then Whitaker should be able to. Not saying I don't understand the logic there, I do, but there's a couple of things to keep in mind for that. One, he... Duplessis did stop Roberto Soldich in their first fight. Soldich knocked him out in the rematch, but 
Secondly, that was a welterweight. Looking at Duplessis now, I have no problem believing that some of why some because there was there were technical issues. You can find that fight if you're curious. Like, I'm not saying there weren't technical issues. I'm saying looking at the size of Duplessis, I have no problem believing that the cut to welterweight diminished his recoverability and his chin. No problem believing that. Whitaker was able to land on him here, and he just never, it never kind of stopped him. It never deterred Duplessis from what he was doing, which is the craziest thing in the world, because, you know, Whitaker went hell for leather with Yoel Romero, who's about as physical a fighter as you'll find, certainly at that time. Um, Duplessis just, nah, we're good, man. Okay, I don't want to get jabbed, but you know, as long as I'm blocking the follow-ups, I can find an angle, I can keep coming. Um, that's, he's a tank, man. He's big, he's strong, he's determined. He can actually, get, again, some of his individual decision-making moment-to-moment, moment, maybe not always the greatest, but he can game plan. Look at some of those other fights, then, like, especially with hindsight, you can see what he's doing. And, it's again, is it always the smartest thing in the world? Sometimes, sometimes, especially with game planning um, and executing them, like there's just sacrifices you have to make along the way. Like, there's just some times when you're going to sacrifice position, you're going to sacrifice a couple of decisions, especially if you're trying, like, especially if you're fighting like Darren Till and like, okay, we're going to tire him out because he gets tired, and we're going to make him wrestle and get physical. Some of the time, in the process of executing that, some of what you do doesn't always look good, doesn't always make the most sense. But it's in service of something greater. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe and he's maybe he has just kind of God's perfect idioted lucked his way through this. I I doubt it. I profoundly doubt that. I don't think there's anything accidental about Duplessis' success. Um, but he's he's not lost in the UFC yet. He's only gone the distance once. It was with Brad Tavares. Yeah, dude, he stopped in succession Darren Till, Derek Brunson, and Robert Whitaker. You don't do that by accident. Um, Post-fight, you know, he did the I'm coming for the belt thing. Israel Adesanya was cage-side, and he jumped into the cage. I mean, it was invited. You know, he didn't pull a Connor. But he was in there, and they got face-to-face, -face, and Izzy... Izzy did this. Oh, you this is my African brother, huh? What's up? And then just proceeded to call him the N-word repeatedly. I don't know how to feel about that. Um, but with the following kind of couple of caveats here. Had it only been like once, I think it would have been funny. But the fact that he just kind of kept going to it, kept repeating it, um, got a little bit, like, a little bit like, what are we doing here? Uh, that said, I'm 90% sure Adesanya was just trying to bait him into saying it back at him. <laughs> oh, which would have been the funniest thing in the, like, okay, I shouldn't say it would be funny, but 
it's it kind of would have been like I okay it I don't think it would have objectively been the funniest thing in the world I would have laughed. My sense of humor is warped though, so take that for what it's worth. Uh, they again they had a little bit of a back and forth duplicity doing the you know yeah I'm African but you're no brother of mine, not the worst line in the world actually. And then Adesanya you're like no no I'm African I you, I do a 23 and me test I know where I come from I'm gonna show you where you come from. These two are going to fight, and it's going to be heated. Um, and I, I talked a little bit about this previously, because there's a bunch of people who got up in arms over Duplessis doing the, you know, I'll, we're going to fight for the real Afri- to determine who's the real African champion. That's not... I think that got taken a little out of context. Duplessis is not saying that... Because um, he's gone on and clarified some of this. He's not saying Adesanya isn't African. He's saying two Africans are going to fight to determine who is the real African champion. It's not like you're a phony African, but if you got two Africans, there can only be one African champion because there can only be one champion, so we're going to fight it out. And look, it rubbed some people the wrong way because one, they didn't read the full quote. They read the headline because that's where we are as a society. And two, there's a bunch of people who are... Uh... Okay. I'm going to tread into some murky waters here, and I just hope you'll all know I'm not, you all understand, I'm not coming from a place of anger. I'm not coming from a place of maliciousness. I'm not coming from a place of ignorance. But if we want to talk a little bit about race, I have to, I have to, I have actually have to talk about this because Dana White is stupid. <laughs> so hang on, I'll get, let me do this real fast. So Dana White was asked at the press post-fight presser about, you know, how are you going to deal with the sort of racial undertones of this fight? And his response was, what racial undertones? The fact that Dana's defense mechanism for this kind of stuff is to just look you dead in the eye and go, I don't get this, spell it out for me, to try and make you uncomfortable. It works a shocking amount of the time. It helps to have a media, co- a media presence that's just utterly cowed by you. And the MMA media is bunch of, like, the most obsequious bootlicks. Maybe not the most, but a lot of them. So when someone says, you know, you're going to have a white guy, you know, Duplessis is white, he's African, fighting a black guy, both Africans, and, you know, the history of race relations in South Africa is, it's ugly, man. Ain't no getting around history. And for Data just go, no, I want you to spell it out for me. Tell me what's wrong with this, and then to just dismiss it as it's the it's the fight game, what do you want? The amount of BS that, not just Dana, let me stress this, not just Dana. There's a lot of people in the combat sports game who use that logic, if not that exact line, to justify the worst. I mean the worst. Look at who's involved in MMA. Look at some of the people. It is rife with... What do you want to say? Corruption? At a minimum, corruption? Scumbaggery? The number of truly heinous individuals trying to kind of gain trying to boost their own ego by associating themselves with it. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. The fact that the 
Anyway, here's another thing. Let me talk about... No, you know, I'm going to do this first. Then I'll talk about Whitaker and Duplessy. Or not Whitaker, sorry. I'm Adesanya and Duplessy. The martial art, not just MMA, the martial arts community at large has this weird combination of chip on our shoulder and desperation for validation that is unhealthy, to be candid. For a long time, it was, you know, we're the underdogs. It was true for a long time. And screw you. If you don't want to watch, fine, don't watch. But you shouldn't be able to regulate us out of existence. You shouldn't be able to... You don't have to like it, but you shouldn't demean, dismiss, and belittle it. That was that was the fight for a long time. And that kind of attitude... I'm not saying it doesn't have benefits. I'm saying it actually leaves you quite vulnerable. Because suddenly... Anyone who shows interest, anyone who wants to be around it, anyone, you do the, okay, come on in. It's bad, man. How many fighters, how many fighters, at the drop of a hat, if you ask them, will go on a rant about the state of the world, about the state of social media, about the state of the government, about whatever, then, no, Mark Zuckerberg kind of trains on occasion and thinks it's cool. Suddenly, you were railing five minutes ago about about censorship on Facebook, about tech oligarchs keeping you down, but one of them says, I think this is cool, buddy, come on in. Because that chip on your shoulder about and desire for validation is like, oh, anyone. So a murderous dictator wants to pay you money to be associated with him and to take glamour shots and do the lightest of light sparring so he can feel good about himself and never mind all the atrocities he's committed. Hey, you're paying me and I'm desperate for cash and you think this is cool and this is what I do and I think it's cool, so hey, come on in. Come on in. That's where we are. That's where MMA is. And it's not good. It's not good. Saying that out loud. So, back to Duplessis and Adesanya. Again, like the, the history of race relations in South Africa, it ain't good. Uh, they had, you know, te- I think, when was apartheid repealed? Might have technically been in my lifetime. I, w- I wish to double-check this now. I'm I'm fairly sure. Hang on. Um, to the early 90s, it looks like. Yeah, hang on. And uh, yeah, early 90s, so I was alive. Not going to tell you all my birthday for obvious reasons, but I was alive when apartheid was still going on in South Africa. And yeah, it wasn't a good thing. 
Shocker. I'm opposed to racism. Most people, sh <laughs> most people are. It's not. It, it's stupid. But putting that aside, uh, you know, you, you're, those two are gonna fight again. It's gonna be heated. And you've gotta. Here's the thing about this, because I've gotta talk about this again. There's a lot of people who look at South Africans and either because they're still holding moral resentment over what the government did or because they're there's some there's a lot of inherent racism in looking at someone and going you can't be x you don't look that way and there's a lot of south africa Look, Africa is an enormous continent. Enormous. If, you if you've never looked up the actual size of Africa, because a lot of maps condense it a little bit, look it up. It's huge. There's a lot of room for different kinds of people that come from Africa. And, oh no, colonialism bad. Well, I'm not here to say colonialism was the best thing in the world. I am here to say that pretending that it was A, uniquely Western European, or B, not somehow kind of an inevitability with cultural and technological evolution. Because I tend to think both of those things are true. I mean, let's not pretend other, you know, tribes of Native American Indians or First Nationers or whatever the appropriate terminology is. I'm not trying to be dismissive there. Or, you know, different African tribes and kingdoms, they fought each other, they killed each other, they colonized each other. Western Europe wound up being uniquely good at it for a series of reasons that are kind of hard to fully parse out. By all rights, it should have been like... Is it the Chinese or the Japanese? It should have been the Chinese. There's a weird thing, actually, by the way. Minor bit of, like, alternate history, if you want to step over here real fast. Um, there was a Chinese emperor like the, the chinese had the technology the sailing technology and capability of exploring across the ocean before the western europeans did and were poised to do so they would have like china would have discovered california long before either the spanish or the maybe not necessarily before the vikings technically found like northern canada because that's actually a lot shorter trip when you understand that it's a spherical thing but like they they would have found North and South America before the Spanish, the Portuguese, the English, the whatever. Like they were poised to do that, and they had a new emperor come in who just said, "No, we're not doing that." But like there there's an alternate history of the world where the Chinese do long form ocean exploratory before Western Europe. And they find America first, what we know as America first, and they like colonize it first, and that's a that's a weird potential alternate history bit there. Sorry, the long and the short of that is, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of misplaced resentment about that from a lot of people. Now, again, I'm not here to say colonialism was a good thing. I I just think it's I think it was inevitable. That doesn't mean good, but it does mean there's a lot of unfair, some judgments that are very fair, by the way. Like, I'm, there were some truly horrible things. Of course, there were, you know, 
Again, people have done horrible things to each other throughout the long, sad, tragic line of history, so... I just don't get up in arms over some of them, the way others do. But, you know, I, like, I'm an American. I was born here, my family was born here, I forget exactly how many generations back I go. But, like, Duplessis African. If you don't think he's African because he looks the way he looks, that says something about you, doesn't it? I mean, we had this, I had the same thing when... I had the same argument in a slightly different forum. If earlier this year, Netflix released the um, that, their Cleopatra documentary done by Jada Pinkett Smith, and it's a terrible documentary because it's it's fiction. It's historical fiction. Which, if they'd called it historical fiction, I wouldn't have cared about, but you called it a documentary, and, well, that means you're beholden to the truth. And they, ca- for their, like, dramatic recreations, they cast a black actress to play Cleopatra, and Cleopatra wasn't black. Part of Jada Pinkett Smith, part of the defense for this was, well, you know, she didn't, Cleopatra didn't look like Elizabeth Taylor either from the the movie Cleopatra, one of the biggest bombs in history. And no, no one's saying she looked like Elizabeth Taylor. But that's historical fiction. That is fiction. You're proposing to tell a documentary. And you're not. You're doing historical fiction. If you just said it was historical fiction, I don't think too many people would have cared that much. But then one of the showrunners also came... Because the Egyptian government got pissed. As they should be, as they should have, by the way. Like, you're genuinely trying to smash their culture. You're trying to steal Egyptian culture. And part of the defense from from the showrunner was, I'm just trying to ask Egyptians to see themselves as Africans... And they don't like that, and I just, they are Africans. Egypt is part of Africa. So's Libya, so's Morocco, so's Tunisia. Like, so's Algeria. Like, you, you, I bet, you do take all these people who try to be over, are overly sensitive about this kind of thing, show them, you know, average person from Morocco, like, so is this an African? And their response is going... They're not going to ask. They're not going to ask where you're from. They're just going to look at them and make an assumption. Now, the, the people of Egypt are African. They don't need to think of themselves as African. They are African. The fact that they don't behave a way you think they should behave about that, that says a hell of a lot more about you than it does about them. And... Again, to kind of get this back on track, look, you're going to have, this is kind of historic. I'd have to double check if this has happened before, but you would genuinely have two African-born fighters fighting for a UFC title. It might be a first to have two Africans fighting for the belt. But because, you know, Duplicy doesn't look the way some people think Africans look, it, we are where we are. Please don't let this get me in trouble, I beg of you. <laughs> I'd like to think you all know where I'm coming from and the point I'm making, but... But, you know, I'm going to just briefly... If the UFC wanted to run an event in Africa, I'd have to double-check, but South Africa might be able to do it. Like, there's a handful of places in Africa that have the development, that have the infrastructure, and that have the stability to do that, to host a big UFC event. Um, depending on the, depending on what exactly, Egypt might be able to. Um, there's places in Nigeria that I think could. 
Uh, but South Africa is not a third world country, man. You know, it's developed. It's got infrastructure. You could do an event there if you wanted to do one. And South Africa's actually got a pretty decent MMA footprint. Not the biggest in the world, but you've got Duplessis. Um, other guy on this card we're going to talk about in a minute, Cameron Simon. You've had a few other guys that have come out of South Africa that have been in the UFC. Trevor Prangley did. I mentioned Gerald McClellan. He was South African. So it's it's kind of budding there. So it's a thought. I don't think they will. Certainly not for the next one. Like that would. They'll probably put it. They might try that in, um, you know, in Abu Dhabi or something similar. To try and make it an easier broadcast. Uh, potentially even easier travel. I don't know. Is South Africa to Los to South Africa is much closer to, the, to like Vegas, but whatever. Well, you're Nigeria, like Nigerians too. So forget. I'm... But we might, you know, it's that one's going to be what it's going to be in that respect. Um, because Adesanya rubs people the wrong way in some respects, and there's a lot of people who are like, you know, Izzy was out there, kind of showing his ass. And I'm going to do the following: like fighters get heated. I'm not going to hold this against him. Look, again, was this my favorite iteration of a face-off? No. Do I think it would have been funnier, or like it kind of could have sat a bit more if he just kind of left the N-word at like one or two? Uh, yeah, that, that might be more how I would like it played, but, you know, I'm me. Your mileage will vary. Uh, I mean, Duplessis, after the fact, said, yeah, you know, he's out there behaving like a child. That's not how a champion should behave, and... I've seen a lot of champions in a lot of sports do a lot dumber stuff than what Izzy just did, for the record. Not saying I like any of it, mind you. And if his general point is, if you're a champion, you should comport yourself as one, I actually don't disagree. But, again, those two, are that's going to get heated. And it might get ugly. It might also not. It might be able to ride the right... Hard to say, like, the right line, but it might be able to ride the right line there. Um... Funnier, one of the funnier takes on Twitter, um, after that interaction, somebody meant, you know, after all that, if Duplessis goes from beating Whitaker to beating Adesanya, he gets an N-word pass, <laughs> which, uh, which popped me as, as a line, like, um, I'm actually kind of looking forward to that fight, I'm not sure how that goes, like, I'm gonna pick Izzy, just for the record, but, once again, man, Duplessis strong, He's determined. He's headstrong. He's got power. He's got great physicality. He's got a motor on him. Last thing before we move on. I swear we've been going for a while now. He's having, after he got his nose fixed, apparently, um, he seems to have finally, like, I don't know how much, you know, opening up the nasal passage helped. I'm sure, like, I've never had nose problems like that, thankfully. I've known one or two people that have. Nothing, I don't think anything as bad as what he's saying he had, but I've uh, I have known some people that have had some issues. And I'm sure it helped. I also think he dialed in his methodology. Because if you look at the pace these two fought at for as long as this fight lasted for middleweights, they fought at a pretty high pace. Um... Uh, Added to the things that Duplessis does well, he's got a motor. He's got a motor. If he can make Adesanya fight at a high pace for a long time... Look, we've seen Izzy fight five rounds. 
I don't think we've ever... I don't think he's fought at a really high pace since, like, maybe the Gastelum fight. I'm not saying Adesanya can't do it. Just be very clear. I think very, very highly of Adesanya's abilities. But if he has to fight at a high pace, kind of less than technical affair for five for 25 minutes, I don't know what that looks like from him. Maybe it's irrelevant. But it's it's something. So. Heck of a win for Duplessis. Again, a lot of people eating a lot of crow on this one. Um, and to the extent that I deserve to eat some crow on it, I, I got the pick wrong, but I don't think I dismissed Duplessis. A lot of people just flat out said, no way, never. Um, no. Turns out, he's real good. He's real good. Sucks for Whitaker, man. I'm, I'm an avowed fan of Bobby Knuckles. Sucks to see him lose. I'm, I don't quite know what this does for him. Um, he's got, I mean, prior to this, his only losses at middleweight were to Adesanya. He's still one of the very best middleweights in the world. I mean, he could fight other middleweights still. I mean, he could fight. Sean Strickland could use a fight. That'd be weird. That would be a weird fight. But not the worst fight in the world either. Uh, Strickland and Whitaker. So I don't know exactly where this lands him, but he's still a very good fighter. He might still work his way back into the title picture. He's just that good. But he's also been doing this for a while, man. I'm not here to say he, he should retire. He's only 32. With Let me throw the, the caveat out here. He's been in the UFC since 2012. That was December of that year, so he's coming up on 11 years in the UFC. Early on, that was welterweight, and he had some tough fights at welterweight. Then, you know, he had his great run at middleweight. It's an, but He had some wars along the way, man. Like, those Romero fights, that'll take it out of you. Um, that fight with Gastelum, I mean, that was mostly one-way traffic, but... He, he hasn't had as many of these, like, knockdown, dragout wars as others, but... Dude, those two Romero fights were tough. That second one in particular, man. Like, Romero bombed on him. Romero nearly finished him. Then Adesanya did. And... Just... And 11 years in the UFC is just a long time. That's just a long time. Especially when you... If you're gr if you're kind of just grinding it out at like the um like the upper mid level, it's more doable. But let me read his let me read his um, resume to you all. So he beats Brad Scott in his UFC debut. Stops Colton Smith. He beat the crap out of Colton Smith. Drops a split decision to Court McGee. Pretty tough fight. Gets stopped by Stephen Thompson, beats Mike Rhodes, moves up to middleweight now, beats Clint Hester, who was going to be something at one point, knocks out Brad Tavares, who's still doing stuff, beats Uriah Hall, beats Rafael Natal, that was a rugged fight, beats Derek Brunson, Brunson fought like a bat out of hell on that one, stops Jacare Souza, fights Yoel, beats Yoel Romero, beats Yoel Romero again, loses to Adesanya, beats Till, beats Cannoneer, beats Gastelum, loses to Adesanya, beats Vittori, and now loses to Duplessis. 
Find me a soft touch in there anywhere. Maybe Colton Smith is the closest you can get. Or, I don't know, maybe Mike Rhodes. But, dude, his middleweight debut was against Clint Hester. Was a, I picked against him in that fight. Because Clint Hester, he looked pretty darn good. He was a big guy, uh, athletic, and he washed out, and partially because of what Whitaker did to him. His entire middleweight run. Like, Hester might be the closest he ever got. Then that was just, uh, like, okay, let's see if you can handle the size disparity. After that, like, Tavares, Hall, Natal, Brunson, Souza, Romero, Romero, like, there's nothing approximating a soft touch in there anywhere. This guy has fought everybody at the top of this division. Everybody. And that will just kind of grind you down. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm not, I don't think he's going to retire. You know, get very young still, still very, very good. Like, it's not like he didn't have moments here. He had plenty of them. But to that same point, something else about Whitaker, man, there's a lot of tape on him. There's a lot of tape on him, and that, that plays a role. All right, I got to move on, or I'm going to be here for like four hours. So next up, catchweight, because Jalen Turner missed weight. Another upset. Dan Hooker defeats Jalen Turner via split decision. They were 29-28s. And Adelaide Bird, who I thought had been retired, um, terrible scorecard, gives Turner the third. Utter crap. The second round I could see as a swing round. First round, things are going Turner's way. He's fighting long. Hooker's having a bit of success. But Turner's landing the better strikes. Second round starts more of the same. Turner lands this sick head kick. Hooker just eats it and decides, all right, fine. If I'm going down, here we go. Gets back on offense, starts pressing Turner back. Turner's cardio going backwards kind of falls apart real fast. Might just be this fight, but and the weight cut. Backs him up, batters him, goes to the body, throws some knees, some elbows, drops him along the fence line, gets the back, has a choke, and then the clock expires. If there's five more seconds in that round, Turner's tapping. It was that close. That's why I gave, so Turner has the first. I gave Hooker the second because he got a near finish, and that counts for something. Third round is kind of just Hooker's round. He does a lot more, uh, Turner comes out okay, but he kind of fades. And then Hooker gets back on offense, pressures him, batters him against the fence. Just you know, felt like a pretty clear Hooker round, but old Adelaide Bird, just still the worst. Um, I didn't, I'm, I got this one wrong, prediction-wise. Um, hats off to Dan Hooker, man. This was, if not for um, Pantoja and Moreno, this was your fight of the night. If not for that fight, this was a pretty crazy fight. A um, pretty good three-rounder, just heck of a fight, heck of a dude, th just the dog and Dan Hooker. You have to. I'm not saying he can't be stopped, but you got to take him out. Otherwise, he's going to be there the whole time. Uh, middleweight, Bo Nickel. Uh, he was supposed to fight Treshawn Gore, if you'll recall. Um, that fell apart. Instepped Valentin Woodburn, who looked a, looks a lot kind of like um, a professional wrestler who I'm stuck covering sometimes, named Alex, the ring name of Alex Kane. Uh I was a little bit surprised. Like, they've got, I think, the same haircut, kind of, uh, going with the mohawk thing. 
um, similar facial features, similar body types, actually. Um, Woodburn's in much better shape than Kane, believe it or not. Uh, but both a little bit shorter, a little bit stockier, but, you know. Uh, so I, I did a couple of double takes there when I caught him out of the corner of my eye. Like, wait, what? But, um, yeah, Alex Kane has this big scar on his torso. I'm not sure from what. And Woodburn, so I, I knew it wasn't him, but a uh, little bit of similarity there. was a little bit surprising. Um, Bo Nickel just starches him 38 seconds. Fakes a takedown, lands a left hand, catches him, kind of bounces in, catches him with a right hook, opposite stances, because Nickel fights southpaw. Hurts him, hits him with another left, hits him with another left, steps in, left uppercut, drops him. Um, we don't need to rush Bo Nickel. Like he, I mean this, we don't need to rush him. But this, he's good. He's got every tool you could possibly want. He's got the work ethic. He's got the wrestling. He's got hands. He's got an insane scramble. Only thing we need to see is his cardio over a longer fight. But there's some footwork stuff here that needs to be tightened up. He's go He was bouncing a little bit too far to kind of come back in, and it's a nitpick. But ideally, you shorten that by about half because he was getting out of range. But again, you only need to make a miss by an inch. Whether they miss by an inch or they miss by a mile, they still miss. And if they only miss by an inch, you're in prime position to counter. You know, good footwork is small. And he's still developing. Mean, he's got five fights. I'm nitpicking, but, you know, I got to talk about it. So, um, that dude, that dude is good. That dude is real good. Uh, prelims, I got to talk about this one for a little bit. It's, this is going to be a long podcast, guys. I apologize. You already know the runtime. I'm still here talking. Um, Robbie Lawler knocks out Nico Price, 38 seconds of the first round. For the record, we set a new uh, modern-day record for the UFC here. We had four finishes in under a minute. Uh, the previous record was three. So, Robbie Lawler, his last fight, he announced beforehand, he's going to retire, this is his last ride. Comes out to, I think he always kind of comes out to the Last of the Mohicans theme. It's a really exceptional this is a soundtrack, uh, a movie score that I don't think it's talked about enough. The last of the, the score to the Last of the Mohicans is that is top tier movie music, and he comes out to that here because he is the Last of the Mohicans. Um, yeah, he just punches Wayne to a clinch, grabs a collar tie, uppercut, overhand, uppercut, overhand, drops him, walks off, beautiful. Uh, gets. They had this um, retirement for him ready. You know, so he gets in. Rogan's giving him the interview. He's a little emotional. And then Rogan says, and we got a thing for you to watch. And they throw to this like highlight package of him. And we get picture in picture so we can watch Robbie Lawler's reaction. And he's barely keeping it together. You can see the emotion on his face. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say here other than thank you to Robbie Lawler. Robbie Lawler's been doing this for a long time. He was... He and Andre Arlovsky, I think, were the only guys prior to... So prior to his retirement. He and Andre Arlovsky were the only ones on the UFC roster who had made their professional debut before 9-11. Robbie Lawler debuted earlier in 2001 as a professional. That's how long he's been doing this. 
He's over 40 now. I watched a lot of his highs and lows. A lot of them. Um, his initial run in the UFC where he looked electric for a bit, but then kind of faded. He kind of bounced around the indie scene a little bit. Um, you know, Icon, Elite XC, uh, a few other places like that. Technically a pride fight. He fought on the... I think he fought on Pride's one of Pride's U.S. shows. That would have been like what, 33 or 34. Uh, his time in Strike Force, dude, he was. It's so weird to think about him in Strike Force because he turned in some great fights, and some he had some great moments. He also had some total duds. He just sometimes he just looked lifeless. You guys can see it. He like. There's that famous photo of him at one of the press conferences. He's sitting next to Fedor, and he just puts his hat over his eyes, and he takes a nap. Like, he's just he's disinterested in all of it. UFC reabsorbs Strikeforce, and Lawler comes back to welterweight. He fought most of his um, Strikeforce time at middleweight. And just, finally, everything starts clicking. He batters and stops Josh Koscik. I didn't think he was going to win that one. He did. Goes on this tremendous run, fights for the belt, can't quite get it, gets back to it, wins it. Somewhat, I didn't think he won that fight, but I was happy for him. Proceeds to give us the two most, like, you will not find a better two-fight stretch in anywhere than Robbie Lawler's sec- title fight with Roy McDonald, followed by Robbie Lawler versus Carlos Condit. I thought he lost the Condit fight. Those two fights back-to-back, nobody else has that. I mean that. Like, take whatever action hero fighter you want to find, throw their resume up there, and there's some great ones. You will not find somebody who did that back-to-back. Those are two of the best fights ever. Ever. He did that in a row. And him going out, on a win with the deserved fanfare. Dude, he was fighting tears walking to the cage. Like, you could see it. MMA gives us this so rarely. Think about all your fighting heroes, man. How did they go out? This can go back, we can go back as far as we want with this. You know, Joe Lewis fighting long past his prime because he was taking it because of money issues. You know, Muhammad Ali's last couple of fights, they weren't great. Great at all. Um, you know, Mike Tyson had some very serious duds in there. You know, if you want to move it over to MMA, we can go real... Dude, look at how Anderson Silva went out. In the apex, in front of nobody. Losing to Uriah Hall. Maybe the greatest... One of the best ever. Nothing. Look at how Jose Aldo went out. Look at how Frankie Edgar went out. He got stretched in his last fight, man. Uh, it was Gutierrez who just kneed him in the face. Knocked him out. Look at how BJ Penn went out. Look at how Benson Henderson went out. Look at how Fedor went out. We can we can go down the list. The number of people, I mean, even look, did GSP get to kind of go out on a good note? Yes, but 
it wasn't this, and it's kind of a shame. Because it wound up being, you know, medical issues that forced him to vacate the middleweight belt, and then he just never got back in. We never got to say goodbye to him, you know? It's hard to beat, I think, in full-on retrospect, it's hard to beat um, Khabib's retirement. Going out there, beating Justin freaking Gagey the way he did, then retiring undefeated, undisputed. Um, think of, you know, look, how, look at how Cerrone went out. He went out in a couple of losing efforts. Uh, when Tony, Fer we're not that far from Tony Ferguson probably going, and that's not going to have a happy ending. In the in the ring, at least. Um, again, just and Chris Weidman, like he's about to come back, but look at the laundry list of stuff that guy's had to go through. When that when that one comes around, I mean. Dude, Luke Rockhold had sort of a moral victory when he kind of had that, like, retirement with just that wild brawl with uh, Paulo Costa. But he kind of got beat up, and then he had the bare-knuckle thing where he got his teeth knocked out by Mike Perry. How do we think Connor's going to go out? I'm going to tell you guys, I doubt he goes out. It ain't looking good. Put it like that. I... I'm going to depress myself if I keep going with that list. Because it's long. Dude, the fact that the last time we saw Nick... We see Nick Diaz fight might have been his fight with Robbie Lawler. Like, if you saw Nick in his prime and you knew what he was... Like, that's depressing. That's just depressing. Getting to see someone celebrated. Who gets to have the high note. Who gets the fairy tale ending. Who gets to go out in front of an appreciative audience turn in this was his first this was the first time Robbie Lawler finished somebody in the first round since that Josh Koscheck fight by the way Just FYI but he gets to go out there and he ended it pretty much how it started dude his Lawler's because and he comes back and he stops Koscheck in the first round his first UFC fight he had that barn burner with Aaron Riley. But if you look at what he started doing after that, you know, stopping Steve Berger and then Tiki Goshen. Um, he, he exited this sport the way he got into it, violently and leaving a crumpled body behind him. And he gave us some of the best fights you'll ever see. Some of the very best. There's not a lot of guys like Robbie Lawler. This sport. To the extent that MMA is a sport. And to see him go get to be celebrated. And get to go out like that. I'm not an overly emotional guy. This kind of how. Not to say that I there's anything good, bad, or otherwise. But that's a statement of fact about me. I had a tear in my eye watching that. You know, it's, it just never happens. It just never happens that somebody like that gets to have the happy ending. Most of the time, 
these guys they get carried out they get carried out Robbie Lawler walked out and left another scene of carnage behind him so like everything everything before that moment in this fight card was pretty darn good everything after that was bonkers that was our turning point for like good to all-time great event all right moving on um a catch weight of 130 because the fight kind of came together late tatsuro tyra defeated edgar um Shadrez via unanimous decision 29 27 across the board so first round a little bit back and forth before tyra gets a takedown just much better grappler out grapples him second round more of the same actually 10 8 second for me and apparently everyone else Chavez kept jumping for this guillotine, and it got him in bad positions in the first and second round. I'm going to level a minor criticism at Tyra here. He's an exceptional grappler. He needs to get better ground and pound. He needs to figure out a better delivery system for that, because it's going to open up a lot of what he does. He landed some pretty good elbows as this was going, but you can tell he's not very well... You can tell he's not very comfortable doing it. He's not very well schooled in it. Something he needs to work on. I think he's very used to being able to dominate positionally and use that to his advantage rather than using a lot of damage to open things up. And I think he needs to start um, upping the violence quotient on what he does. Third round, things are going more tighter his way. And then Chardes turns it up a little bit. He jumps for the guillotine again. It's actually... So, okay, end of the second, part of the reason we go 10-8 there. Um, Tyra's on top. Shadrez is trying to wall walk. And Tyra, because of how he's stepping up, get, falls in, like, is in a triangle position. So he wraps up the triangle choke, sits back. Again, another one of those situations where if he'd had a few more seconds, he would have finished it. Somewhat counterbalanced by the third round here when Shadrez jumps for the guillotine again in the waning seconds. And it's actually kind of tight this time, and he rolls to full mount with it, and... Maybe if there's a little more time, he's able to get the submission, but clock runs out. Um, yeah, I like Tyra. He needs to work his stand-up a little bit. It's still a little rudimentary. His grappling is good. His passing game is good. He just needs more offense and more violence there instead of just positional stuff. Um, it, and you know what? I'll, I'll give Tyra a little credit here. He came in on relatively short notice. And he turned in a pretty good fight. Uh, so moving on, women's strawweight. Big upset here. Um, Denise Gomes defeated Yasmin Hauregi via TKO punches 20 seconds of the first round. Came out, landed a right hand, landed another right hand that dropped Hauregi, got over, landed punches. Hauregi tries to wall rock and just gets blasted with left hands until the ref steps in. Um, Hauregi was a sizable favorite. And I think I picked her, but you got to be careful with big odds on f fights between two fighters who are this kind of more green. You know, there's you're asking for trouble. Uh, light heavyweight Alonzo Menafield defeated Jimmy Crute via guillotine choke. This was kind of a topside guillotine. 155 of the second. Not a whole lot here. Um, yeah, Crute goes for a takedown on the finish. Menafield grabs the front headlock, gets the guillotine position, forces him down with it, and then keeps the grip. 
I see he doesn't get on top in full mount. It's side control, but he's able to get a little bit of a crank going. His weight's dropping into it, and that's just a... That's like catch wrestling style way of finishing that choke. It's mean. Uh, gets the tap. Kroot looked like he was going to retire after the fight. I think his coaches talked him out of it. At least talked him out of making the decision right here. I'm just going to say this about Jimmy Kroot. He's only 27. But... He hasn't been in the UFC all that long either. 2018. You know, five years. But he's had some rough fights during that time. I mean, even some of the stuff he won, like, he had some tough fights. And he's on a tough streak at the moment. Losses to Anthony Smith. Um, Jamal Hill. Then, you know, the two fights with Menafield. I'm kind of glad they talked him out of it, but he's got to sort some stuff out. Menafield would like to fight someone ranked next. I don't think that's entirely uncalled for. It's light heavyweight. Also at light heavyweight, um, Vitor Petrino defeated Marcin Procneo via arm triangle choke, 342 of the third. Uh, Petrino just better. I don't have a whole lot here. It's a mid-level light heavyweight fight. Bantamweights, uh, Cameron Simon defeated Terrence Mitchell via TKO punches from back mount, 310 of the first. Good performance out of Simon. Nice to see him get a, a very clean win because he's had some foul trouble in his last couple of fights. And to see him get everything you know, a lot cleaner here was nice. Uh, he got a pretty good win. Flyweight. Oh, this one, man. Jesus Aguilar knocked the crap out of Shannon Ross. 17 seconds of the first round. The old fake the double leg come with the overhand right. And if they're not ready for it, boom. He dropped. He dropped like, you know... Um, Nate Quarry did, or you've seen Michael Johnson drop this way before. Out on his feet, whole body locks up, and they just kind of fall over. Um, yeah, and then kicking everything off, Esteban Rybovich defeated Camuela Kirk. 29-28 across the boards for unanimous decision. Eh, not a whole lot here. Um, Kirk, the better grappler, but he couldn't get there consistently, and Rybovich just kind of took over through rounds two and three. So that was the whole thing. I spent a long time talking about just this card. Good grief. We're going to be here forever. But you already know that. You know the runtime. I don't yet. I'm still recording. <laughs> I'll try to be quicker through the rest of this. I promise. There was just stuff to talk about. through the Dude, that pay-per-view main card was good. And there was a lot to kind of parse out from it. So I don't regret the runtime of this one. Hope you don't either. Uh, your fight of the night, I already mentioned it. Moreno and Pantoja, million percent yes. Double the usual fight of the night bonus for what they did out there. Give them each a million dollars. Like, whatever. That was so good. Your performances of the night, you could have gone a lot of different ways here. They went with Denise Gomes and Drikas Duplessis. I'm not going to argue with that. Um... Personally, I would have gone Lawler instead of Gomes. Personally. But what what Duplessis did, the fact that he did that to Robert Whitaker, yeah, give him more money, please. <laughs> but there were a lot of, I mean, Aguilar, could, you could have easily given that to Aguilar for that brutal knockout. Benefield, like, there's a lot of ways you could have gone with performance of the night, and I... I'm not going to complain about any of it. I hope they gave everybody involved in this card a bonus of some variety because every single... Look, were there a couple of fights here that were kind of meh? Yeah, but they weren't bad. 
everybody on that main card, and win or lose, everybody who fought on that main card deserves some something extra. They won't get it, but they should. All right, that, jeez, two hours on that. Well, if I have stuff to talk about, I have stuff to talk about. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. My full report is in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. Give it a read if you are so inclined. I always appreciate that. All right, moving on. UFC on ESPN Plus. This will be much shorter. UFC on ESPN 49, excuse me. They changed that? I guess they did. So UFC on ESPN 49. Main event. Holly Holm versus Myra Buena Silva. I don't have anything to say here. I'm going to pick Holly Holm, but look, Buena Silva is not someone to be trifled with. I don't think she's lost at bantamweight. Ever. No, she hasn't. She's lost a couple of flyweight fights to Marina Moroz and then one to Manon Fior. But in the UFC, her bantamweight record is 3-0. and Beating Wu Yanan, Stephanie Egger, and Lena Landsberg. This is just a significant step up in competition for her. The bantamweight title is vacant. I imagine if Holly Holm wins here, there's a decent chance she'll be in that particular discussion. Um, dude, Ronda Rousey's apparently making noise about coming back. Her WWE contract set to expire, I think, sometime this year. Looks like she's going to be putting over Shayna Baszler, which is a good thing. If you care about wrestling at all. But she might be trying to come back now that Amanda Nunes is retired. <laughs> I don't know, dude. Um, yeah, I, I'm not saying Buena Silva can't win this. Holly Holm is, you know, 40 what? One? Yeah, 41. She's, you know, been up and down. Been okay recently. I kind of thought she beat Caitlin Vieira, actually. Uh, so, you know. Uh, I just don't have a lot here. I imagine she wins. She's more used to five-round fights. She's pretty good about keeping distance. Uh, yeah. Alright, let's move on. Cole main event. I, I promise this will be quick. There's not a lot that I really want to dig into here. Albert Durayev and Park, uh, Jun Young Park, excuse me. Um, Park, the Iron Turtle. Yeah, the Iron Turtle. <laughs> I love this guy. <laughs> he's not the best fighter in the world, but he's got a good UFC record, actually. It's 6-2. and two. Only losses are to Anthony Hernandez and Gregory Rodriguez. Um... On a three-fight winning streak at the moment. I mean, Eric Anders, Joseph Holmes, and then Dennis Tallulah, So he's, But I got a soft spot for the guy. He usually comes to fight. Um, we're at Durayev, 16-4. and four. So we get 16-5 versus 16-4. Durayev is 2-1 and one in the UFC. Coming off a win over Chidi and Jakawani. He's had a couple of... That poor guy's had several fights fall through, actually. I mean, some of those might have wound up... Yeah, Buckley closed his eye, I remember that. They were actually having a pretty decent fight before the... I mean, look, Buckley hit him hard enough to close his eye up, so they had to stop it. I'm not saying it was weird. I mean, I'm saying it was a pretty decent fight. Um, I'm gonna go with Park, I think. 
Not so, again, Duraev might pull this one out. This is a fairly well-matched fight, all things considered. But I got a soft spot for Park. Why not? Uh, heavyweights, because of course. Um, Walt Harris and Josh Parisian. Feels like a gimme. So Parisian up and down in the UFC. Two and three trading wins and losses. Losses to Parker Porter, Dante Mays, and Jamal Pogues. Only wins are over Roque Martinez and Alan Badeau. I don't know that Walt Harris is ever really going to turn into anything. But he's on a three-fight losing streak. And look, man, after some of what happened in his personal life, um, that'll what happened there, like, that'll change you. Um, it'll break you. If, if you let it. It will definitely change you. His losses are... I mean, here's the mitigating factor. His losses are to Alistair Overeem, Alexander Volkov, and Marcin Tabora. So he's getting a step down here, but he hasn't, had, he hasn't won a fight since he beat Alexei Olenek in 2019. He needs a win. I think he'll get it, but he needs it. Women's featherweight for some reason. Norma Dumont and Chelsea Chandler. Um, Chandler won her UFC debut last year over Yulia Stolyavrenko. Dumont is... Let's see. 5-2 eh, and two in the UFC. Lost a split decision to Macy Chasson. That was a pretty decent fight. I'll go with Dumont there, I suppose. Lightweight, uh, Atman Azaitar and Francisco Prado. Uh, Mr. Azaitar. He's the one that got cut. Yeah, for that weird thing about like somebody bringing a bag into trading wrist, wristbands for when they were in quarantine and you know, whatever. I feel like somebody stepped... I feel like somebody in power in like Morocco made a call there to get him back in. He's coming off his first loss. Matt Frivola knocked him the Knocked him out. Um, but, you know, Prado is 11-1. and one. I feel like he lost in the UFC. Yeah, Jamie Malarkey. It's a tough draw for your debut. Gonna go with the Zaitar here. Um, yeah, he, he feels like a relatively safe pick. Not gonna be shocked if he loses, though. Lightweight, Terrence McKinney and, uh, let's see, Nazim Sadikov. McKinney, wasn't he just knocked out by Bonfim? Yes, he was. He had a couple of losses in the UFC um, to Drew Dober and then to Bonfim. Sadikov done. I think he's fought at least once in the UFC. He's Uzbek or is that Azerbaijan? Azerbaijan. 8-1. Uh, and one. one is UFC debut. Uh, he opened a cut on Evan Elder that caused a stoppage. I vaguely recall that. I like Terrence McKinney, but I don't quite know what to think of him. Ends up losing two in a row. I'm going to take a flyer on this one. I'm going to go with Sadikov. I might be very, very wrong there. Uh, let's see. At featherweight, Tucker Lutz and Melsic Bagdasarian. Uh, Mr. Lutz is 12-3. and three. He's, what, 1-2 and two in the UFC? Yeah, 1-2. and two. Uh, won his debut, then lost to Pat Sabatini, tough draw, lost to Daniel Pineda. He could use a win here. 
Um, Bogdasarian is seven and two. He's the Glendale guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's coming off his first loss in the UFC. Josh Coolabout beat him. Um, curious to see how he rebounds from that. Um, because instead of before, man, a lot of those Coach Edmund guys, the Edmund Tarverdian guys, their natural ability carries them, but then when it comes time to actually adjust, be coached, they fall apart because he's not very good at that. I feel like I should pick Bogdasarian. Logically, I should. This is not a soft touch, but they're not bumping him up. Like, he had a setback, and they didn't up his level of competition in the wake of that, which is, you know, probably appreciated. I'm going to go with Lutz, and I'm just prepared to be very wrong on that one. Uh, let's see. Women's strawweight. Victoria Dudoka. Dudoka. Uh, Victoria Dudakova. There we go. I got there. Uh, against Estella Nunez. I believe this is Dudakova's UFC debut. She is 6-0. and Yes. Um, contender Series win, which I don't care about. Nunez is 6-4. and Losing UFC record. Yeah, 0-3, actually. Jeez. Lost to Ariane Carnalose, Sam Hughes, and Yasmin Hauregui. They might be trying to set up Dudakova because, you know, contender series and they like her, and Nunez has not proven herself on the UFC level yet. I'll go with Dudakova, but the it used to be that that first fight off the contender series was usually a little more favorable, and then when they realized it still didn't work out, they just kind of abandoned that plan. So, I don't know about that one. Let's see. Featherweight, Austin Lingo and uh, Melchiazel Costa. I'm mispronouncing that first name, and I, I know it, but I can't remember how to do it properly. Lingo, 2-2 two and two in the UFC. Losses to Yusuf Salal and Nate Landwehr. Wins over Jacob Kilburn and Luis Saldana. Coming off the loss to Landwehr. Costa. Um, he had a pretty good UFC debut, if memory serves. No? No, no. He was a good UFC debut for, um, yeah, Tiago Moises beat him. I guess I'll go with Lingo. I, I'm going to lean towards the guy who has actually proven he can win in the UFC at this point. Uh, let's see. Lightweights, Evan Elder and Gennaro Valdez. Um, Elder, 7-2. 0-2 oh, in the UFC, though. Losses to Preston Parsons and the aforementioned on the same card, Nazim Sadakov. Uh, Valdez, 10-2. and 0-2 oh, in the UFC. Dude, Matt Frivola and then Natan Levy. That's a rough couple of fights to draw. Frivola in particular. Uh, Levy, he maybe should have been able to do more. This feels like a loser leaves town match almost. Um, I 
I'm going to flip a coin. Highly technical advice here. So, heads, Valdez, tails, elder. Heads. So, we'll go with Valdez. Uh, let's see. Next up, Tyson Nam and Azat Maxim. Uh, Tyson Nam, man. Been around forever. Almost 40, fighting at flyweight. Coming off that loss to Bruno Silva. Knocked out Oday Osborne before that, though. That was a pretty good knockout. Um, what's Maxim done? I think he's fought... Has he fought? I don't think he's fought in the UFC yet. 16-0. and 0. That's a pretty good record. Where's he fought? Yeah, this is UFC debut. He has mostly fought in... Uh, let's see. Either Octagon MMA, which is not actually a bad promotion. And then Brave. Some places that I don't know about or that aren't listed here. Yeah, Octagon is not the worst. It's a Octagon League MMA, so like OL MMA. They just go back. Um, not the worst promotion in the world. And a couple of wins in Brave. This is a tall order for your debut. Like Tyson Nam is very good. Nam's also, you know, almost 40, and there's been a tad uneven. Oh, am I really going to go with Maxim? That's a hipster pick. I don't like making hipster picks if I don't have a good reason. Now, you know what? I'm, I'm uh, Being almost 40 for Nam is kind of what's pushing me the other way. I'm going to go with Maxim, but... No, change your mind again. Go on with Nam, but this is probably a closer fight than you might think if you just looked at, you know, Tyson Nam's fighting a debutante. That's... I'll phrase that. Lightweight, Alexander Munoz and Carl Deaton III. Mr. Deaton, let's see, 17 and 6. I believe he's lost in the UFC. Yes, he has lost to Joe Selecki in his UFC debut. Selecki kind of ran him over. Munoz, I think he's had one fight in the UFC. Two, actually, jeez. Lost them both. Nazareth Hakparast, tough draw. Losing to Luis Pena, though. He's been out for a while. His last fight was two years ago. Over two years ago. Jeez. Uh, he had a fight fallout with Herbert Burns. Uh, that layoff is... Layoff is not uh, comforting there. I'm going to go with Deaton. And kicking everything off, we have Ashley Evans-Smith and Eileen Perez. Um, Evan Smith has been one and four in her last five. She's been out of action for a while, too, hasn't she? Oh, yeah, she popped. Had a failed drug test. So she's been out for, you know, two plus years with that. Um, Perez, I think, lost her UFC debut. Yeah, step to Stephanie Egger. That layoff, man. How old is Evan Smith now? Thirty-five. Yeah, I'll go with Perez, but I'm, that's kind of a flyer on my end. So I am not. I don't think there's a whole lot there to look forward to. Curious about Azaitar and Prado, and my soft spot for the Iron Turtle and Albert Duraev. Other than that, eh, you know. I talked myself into Terrence McKinney and Nazim Sadikov being at least somewhat interesting.
Um, so there's a few things on here that if you're really looking for something, you can find it. But we're going from like the highest of highs at 290 to the most pedestrian card the UFC. I'm not going to say like the worst thing they could have put out, but this is pretty uninspired. As far as how this card's gone. But Saturday, I will be covering it in the MMAZone411mania.com. Please do stop by, say hello. I always appreciate it. All right. Moving on. The UFC announced for the Madison Square Garden f show, I believe that's November, for the heavyweight title, John Jones and Stipe Miocic. We all kind of figured this was coming. Um, here's the thing about this. The UFC felt like they rushed to announce this because rumors started swirling that Francis Ngannou and Tyson Fury are very close to finalizing a deal for something. And Dana being Dana was like, yeah, I can't let Francis have anything nice, so we'll try to steal the headlines. Um, this is the only fight John was going to take. He's interested in legacy fights. Miocic is the most accomplished heavyweight in UFC history. I don't give I don't give Stipe a lot of chance here. I'm not saying no chance. But we haven't seen Stipe Miocic since Ngannou flatlined him. That was a scary knockout. He hadn't been seen since then. So it's going to be like, what, three years? Since uh, his last fight? Over two, certainly. Because they fought, they fought in 2020, I want to say. Um, but he's been out for a while. He was violently knocked out. He kind of had one foot out the door even in that fight with Nganu. I just... I don't have a lot of reason to pick against John Jones. And I felt like an idiot... Before they... Like, before John beat Gon, like, that whole week leading up to him, I went... I was telling myself, like, why'd you pick against John Jones? You idiot. You know better than that. And then turned out, yeah, I really should have known better than that. Um, I, I, it's not a bad fight. I just don't care that much. That's really the only way I can phrase that. And I imagine if John wins, which is going to be my prediction, I'm not sure how much longer he sticks around. I'm not sure what else is left for him. But that's not a bad headliner for MSG, if you were just talking about, like, names on the marquee, right? Jones and Miocic, you'll get some pull with that. And Jones being able to fight in New York, you know, where he was, I think, born. Certainly, like, er, his early life, I believe, was raised up there in, what was it, Endicott? Somewhere in, you know, not New York City, but New York, somewhere in New York State. And him, you know, getting to go out and then have potentially his last fight under those circumstances. Could be worse. Um, all right, what else do we got? Oh, so Dana White opened his mouth and was talking about the... somebody. I think it was um, Aaron Bronstetter who asked him, so, you know, what are the actual chances that we've got this season of The Ultimate Fighter going and we actually get Chandler versus McGregor at the end of it? And he did the, you know, well, pretty good. And there's some stuff Connor still has to do, but 
you know, if he wants the fight and we can make it work, then who cares what Usada thinks? And I just, and a lot of people just rightly went. Saying the quiet part out loud, aren't you? And then, naturally, Dana lost, a, he didn't quite blow a gasket, but he got, you know, pissy and defensive. About people quoting him here. Like, I never said F Usada. I never said any of that. Like, they're trying to walk it back. No, buddy, look, if Connor says, here's the date, I'll be ready. Give me the USADA exemption. They're going to give him a USADA exemption. Like, here's what USADA is, okay? This is all it is. It's insurance. It is public relations insurance for the UFC. God forbid something terrible, catastrophic happens in the UFC. It will eventually. It is inevitable. You iterate this enough, something tragic will happen. Hasn't yet, but again, it will if you do this long enough. If, and again, you don't wish that on anyone. But really, if if the guy who perpetrated, you know, a paralysis or a serious injury or a death then failed a drug test, can you imagine the fallout? There was a time not that long ago when that might have killed the UFC. Wouldn't at this point, I don't think, but it might have. There was a time it would have. Now, they can just point at USADA and go, look, we did everything we could. What are we... This is... This is a violent sport... We've taken every reasonable precaution, and to all you PR people, to the public, we have this USADA testing. You know, what more do you want? And it screwed fighters along the way, badly. But they don't care, because it's insurance for the corporate entity. That's what it is. It is an inconvenience, and when it is an inconvenience for the UFC, they will circumvent it. Period. They will for Connor, if the opportunity arises. But, you know, Dana just saying the quiet part out loud a little bit like in that one. Um, yeah, and then him walking it back and, oh, all right, I just, I have to, because I can't help myself and I have to make fun of this. So Dana, when he announced Jones versus Miocic, which actually did it in front of a power slap banner because please, 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 please pay attention. No, no, you don't have to watch if you don't want to, but I'm going to make sure. Like they They had a... They had one of those stupid power slap things, like, at the at the weigh-ins for UFC 290. Like, at some point during the weigh-ins, like, hey, power slap, come watch. No! If your line is going to be, if you don't want to watch, don't watch, guys, we're trying not to watch. You're shoving it everywhere. It is on the UFC YouTube channel. It is on the UFC Twitter account. It is on the UFC Facebook page. It is now on the UFC weigh-in show. We are not that far from them deciding at some point during a UFC pay-per-view, one of our things is going to be a power slap event instead of an MMA fight. One of our fights is going to be power slap, not MMA. We are very close to that. If you cannot say... If you don't want to watch, don't watch, while also holding up a giant neon sign and shoving it in our faces. These are two incongruous things you are stating. Anyway, he it got kind of brought up, and he did the power, he, like, power slap is huge in India. Our numbers there are off the charts. And I just, I couldn't help it in my head. I heard, I'm going to make a a professional wrestling reference here. 
I heard Bret Hart going, you know, the front office was telling me I'm bigger in Germany than Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Our numbers in India are off the charts. Yeah, your girlfriend who lives in Canada, right? Like, that's... <laughs> oh, God. It's actually funnier, because I've had two long-distance relationships with women in Canada, so... I actually had to use that line at times. And it, it, it's just an awkward... But it, it's, just, it's just sad. But I have to dunk on it, because it, it made me laugh. Oh, huge numbers in India. Uh-huh. Sure, Brett. Bigger than Hogan. <laughs> the state of things. The absolute state of things. Uh, all right. That's everything I have written down for my rundown, so let me check Twitter and see if anything crazy is broken. If not, we will do plugs and get out of here. Okay, no, so plugs. What do we got this week? Well, my usual spate of professional wrestling coverage. That's MLW on Thursday, WWE SmackDown on Friday, and I might having to be raising my moral objections to MLW at this point. See, they had a pay-per-view on Saturday... And one of the angles they've been running is who's bankrolling this pseudo-faction? It's two guys and a bunch of goons. Revolving goons. But one of those two guys won their world title, and so then actually they had to reveal who the money and power behind this organization is. And it's, drumroll please, human piece of garbage Don King. 90-year-old... My, for all of you who think that I'm a little bit too hard on Dana White, you've never heard me go off on Don King. My, I don't have words. A few years ago, I might have, when I was willing to delve into profanity and anger about this kind of thing on a whim. Uh, I'm not that guy anymore. And I'm better for it. I'd like to think, but my distaste for Don King is profound. And, yeah. yeah. Not good. I normally will stick up for MLW on occasion. Um, I think they generally do the best with what they have, but the last little bit, I think that's not quite been as true. So, anyway, still covering it, so be on the lookout for that. Fusion on Thursday, SmackDown on Friday, D uh, UFC event on Saturday, and the other world of my podcasting endeavors this Tuesday. Tuesday? I want to make sure it's not a Monday show. Yeah, this Tuesday, regular time. This Tuesday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Myself and Mark Radlich will have a double streaming movie review. I'm not sure how we arrived at one of these movies, I will ask. Uh, we will be reviewing the Hulu-exclusive Flamin' Hot. I don't know why. And then Extraction 2, which I do know why, because Mark said, hey, what's a streaming movie recently released that we can talk about? And I put forward that one. Um, not, so we'll talk about those two movies and do the other Damn You Hollywood stuff. Week after that will be Mission Impossible, then Oppenheimer, so we're going to get to where we're supposed to be going here pretty soon. In that respect. So, be on the lookout for all of that. 
So, yeah, that's my other podcast. Next week, back here to review UFC on ESPN 49 and preview UFC on ESPN Plus 83. They're back in London for that one. What do we got? We got Tom Aspinall returning from injury. Nice to see him back against Marcin Tabora. Give me something else on that card. I don't care one iota about Molly McCann and Julius Tolierenko. Nathaniel Wood I'm somewhat interested in. Him and Andre Feely might be good. Paul Craig and Andre Muniz. Craig at middleweight's an interesting proposition. Um, Give me something. Bantamweight Davey Grant's usually good for a fight. Buried on the prelims, uh, Mahmoud Muradov and Brian Barberina. That's actually got some potential. Joel Alvarez and Mark Jacquese isn't bad. That's as far as I'm going. This is not a terribly compelling card. But we'll preview the whole thing next week because it's what I do. I am nothing if not professional. All right. Thank you all very, very much as always. I appreciate the heck out of you. Please uh, continue to listen to the show, if at all, again, if at all possible. Most importantly, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.